everybody. Welcome to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. So as many of you know, or maybe you don't, unless you follow me on on Twitter or get the Unlimited Hangout newsletter, but I've been in the hospital here in Chile with my one and a half year old since the beginning of June. Uh, We're actually still in the hospital. I have a friend watching him right now so I could get away for a while uh, to record something uh, because obviously I've had a lot on my mind over the past two plus months. You know, it's been a while and honestly, you know, after trying to entertain a, a small child in a confined space for a long time. Uh, doing something like this makes me feel kind of uh, kind of normal again, uh, which is which is definitely nice uh, for me in a sense. So I don't want to talk too much about my my son's medical situation and I've, I've sort of explained it in other places um, you know before to an extent, but uh, thankfully there is a light at the end of the tunnel, uh, a little bit of uncertainty about the timeline, but we're hoping to be home. Finally, uh, sometime next month. So uh, long story short, uh, this whole experience has has changed me, you know, in a lot of ways. It's made me rethink a lot about how I uh, approach and, and I guess balance different aspects of my life, including work, of course, um, and, and, you know, pretty much everything. Um, I've thought a lot about healing, obviously. Um, and, you know, that's part of what I want to talk about today. Uh, for the first, you know, couple weeks, I guess, several weeks maybe of um, our stay in the hospital, my son was in a really, really bad way. Uh, and he's definitely out of danger, definitely not the kind he was in for sure. Uh, but when he was, you know, I spent a lot of time, uh, you know, sitting next to him, looking at him. Uh, he was in, in an, an induced a coma. He was on life support, you know, so I was thinking about him and his life, uh, the circumstances that brought him into my life, uh, what could happen, you know, if he doesn't make it home, all, you know, all sorts of things. And I think, you know, that's pretty normal for any parent uh, in that situation. And, you know, obviously for a lot of uh, that time, I was uh, obviously pretty emotional. I mean, it's hard not to get emotional even just talking about it Um, again. But, you know, it was really the first time since I've had kids that I had a lot of time to myself uh, to just sit and think about things uh, and reflect on uh, life, my life, what kind of mother I've been, what kind of person I've been, and uh, how I can be better for my kids so that when we finally do get to go home, uh, things are the best they can possibly be. You know, I've heard from a lot of other parents too, that have had their children in the ICU or the, the NICU, you know, that it, it really just totally changes, um, you know, how you, what the kind of parent you, you want to be, um, cause it's just such a, uh, emotional time, you know, for, for lack of a better term for it. Um, and, you know, even though my son still has a few uh, physical things, uh, you know, to heal from, obviously, um, I realize that I have a lot to heal from, too, you know, not necessarily um, physically. Uh, and I think, you know, if we're honest with ourselves uh, as adults, right, you know, it's it's pretty much true of us all. You know, uh, life is not necessarily uh, kind uh, and, you know. Uh, sometimes, you know, we distract ourselves with work or we're busy with kids or, you know, all other sorts of stuff comes up. And um, sometimes we we forget about 
you know, those parts of ourselves until we're sort of forced by the circumstances of life uh, to, you know, look at them, stare them in the face, right? So for a long time and pretty much ever since I've I've been writing uh, and had any sort of platform, but really even before then, I've avoided talking about personal life as much as possible, uh, including why I do the work that I do and why I care about it. And I actually get asked this a lot in interviews, you know, how did I become who I am? Why do I do what I do? And if you've noticed, I try and give short and honestly pretty evasive answers. And, um, you know, an example of that was actually pretty recent. I was asked that exact question uh, at the Bitcoin Magazine conference in May. And, you know, he told me he was, uh, Mark Goodwin, he was the host of that panel, told me he was going to ask me that right before we went on stage. And I was like, oh, um, I actually don't know if I want to talk about that. So I'm going to try and uh, come up with something else to say. Because, uh, you know, I, you know, I mean, part of the reason I don't like talking about it is because I'd rather that the interviews and public appearances I do be about the work and the research and not about me. And part of that is to avoid, you know, the shoot the messenger tactic when people want to discredit something. Um, but I also, you know, there are questions that are hard for me to answer because I don't like talking about my past or where I come from and what made me who I am. I don't really think it's very pleasant. I think it's actually a rather unpleasant story. So. Uh, in the first part of this podcast, I won't be talking much necessarily about that, maybe more uh, towards the end. Uh, but I, what I do want to talk about and focus on today is how a lot of the tactics used by um, people who are abusive can be very similar to what the elites are doing to us right now and how they're trying to engineer society in a particular direction to make us easier to control. And I think in some way, try and make us more like them. And I think in examining those parallels, it sort of helps elucidate uh, why they do it and what we can do about it. So but now I'd like to introduce uh, the person who's joining me today to talk about these issues. So, uh, uh, of course, it's a regular uh, guest of this podcast, Ryan Christian of The Last American Vagabond, one of my favorite people in independent media to talk to. How are you doing today, Ryan? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Whitney. I, I, I just wanted to say off the gate that I think it's, you know, it's, it's commendable, first of all, but to take, take something that is a hard moment in life and turn it into something or try to make it something that's worth, you know, that you learn something from is something that people have a hard time with. You know, there's always these, these unsettling moments in our lives that, that you can truly profoundly change in a positive way. If you, you know, if you try to dissect it and learn from it, you know, as much as they're terrible. And so that's something that this is, you know, like I understand we're going to talk about today and how we can, you know, see in, in regard to the government and personal relationships as well. So I think it's a good time for this conversation. Well, I think, you know, on a broader scale, like on a societal level, a lot of us have to heal from stuff in order to really like, you know, not to sound cheesy, but to sort of heal our world, you know, and make sure the next generation isn't really messed up because there's a lot of obviously really messed up going on. There's a lot of forces that are trying to specifically target kids with all sorts of stuff. So, you know, definitely yeah. crazy times to live in. And, you know, I think part of the the change that has to come needs to, you know, be internal change for, for people to an extent. Yeah. You, you can't change until you heal first. Right. Right. Totally. So, <clears throat> 
there's a lot of ways we can start off this conversation, but I guess, um, you know, I'll start it off talking a little bit about, you know, I guess my past. So um, I grew up in a household with a parent who is a very extreme and very, uh, very sadistic narcissist experience, you know, my adult life, you know, I decided as soon as I could legally leave my home um, at 18, uh, that I didn't want to spend my whole adult life suffering from that. So I spent most of my 20s trying to sort that out as much as I possibly could um, on my own, because I know, you know, if you just bury it down and don't deal with it, it's something that destroys you over time, especially if, you know, you have anger and all this other stuff, it can eat away at you um, and cause a lot of problems. But you know, the more I've, uh, you know, reflected on that particular type of abuser, and there's a lot of resources for that type of abuse, um, it, you know, if you look for it online and stuff, uh, I just realized there's a lot of parallels, um, you know, with the powers that be, the elites, whatever you want to call them, and that a lot of the tactics that narcissists abuse uh, or use when they abuse their targets and how the powers that be abuse us. There's a lot of similarities. And I think part of that is because at the end of the day, uh, what narcissists are ultimately seeking to do is to keep uh, their victims. And of course, that, that you know, they don't do this to everybody. They strategically pick certain people to do this to. Or, you know, if you're uh, the child of one, you can't go anywhere. So you're, you're easy prey. Uh, but essentially what they aim to do uh, is to keep you basically in this toxic system and uh, train you to essentially serve them and their needs and uh, neglect their own and, and control you. And of course, you know, we talk about a lot with the elites that it's really all about control for them at the end of the day. And they're trying to control uh, us in ways that are just extreme and obsessive. Um, and of course, they're doing that so that we continuously serve them and don't have a mind of our own. Uh, so, you know, maybe that's one similarity. But the one um, thing that, um, you know, you, uh, you and I sort of talked a little bit about uh, before recording that I think is um, a really important thing to look into here is the idea of narcissism. And I guess what I would call uh, the false self, right? So, what do I mean by that? So narcissists uh, tend to sort of have a split personality in a sense, but you generally, you know, only see one side of that self uh, when it's projected publicly, right? So mm -hmm. narcissists will have a superior grandiose self, and that's what I'd call the false self because they're trying to um, project what they want people to see about them. And then they also have an inferior devalued self or, you know, I guess the real self for lack of a better term. And they sort of vacillate between these and trying to manage the feelings of inferiority that bubble up from that devalued self is, you know, responsible for a lot of behaviors that narcissists um, show and a lot of, um, you know, behavior that they use that's abusive, you know, in terms of the people that they're trying to keep, um, you know, providing them with, you know, what what is termed often narcissistic supply or sort of this um, uh these feelings and these feelings of power over people and all of that, that sort of keep narcissists more or less uh, stable in their <laughs> instability, I guess, for lack of a better term. So, um, so the term narcissist, right, comes from the Greek myth of narcissist. And essentially narcissist was a guy that fell in love with his reflection in, in a lake or something like that, a pool of water. And he died waiting for the response of his reflection. He was like hungering for that response. But I think it's more fair to say that uh, the way it is with narcissists, 
is that it, you know, they, they hunger for how they're reflected in the eyes of other people. So a lot of times, at least in my experience, they have this obsession with how other people view them and they want to be viewed uh, a very specific way. But a lot of times that's very, um, very different than how they act privately, like with their family at home or with the, you know, in the relationship they are where they're, you know, abusing someone. It's so interesting the more you look into this. And I love the overlap is so fascinating to think about of, of the way that these what I've all, we've, we've all continued to see as sociopathic, borderline psychopathic people in power is that it's it's inherently insecure, which is so interestingly contradict or it seems counterintuitive, right, that these people are insecure with who they are, but it's inherently selfish. Right. That they're ultimately trying to create this perception of themselves through the way other people see them. And that's so incredibly re relevant to the way the government acts with us today with gaslighting and, you know, making us feel lesser than. And I just find that this I think this is such an important topic because like, I, I agree with you. I think that's exactly what's happening to us today. Yeah, well, if you think about the elites, right? Um, well, here's an example, not to pick on him, right? But Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk has really, really, really wants a certain chunk of people to think he's super cool. He's, he's obviously invested a lot of time in building up that persona, but it's very insecure, right? Because people that have, for example, um, there's a bunch of accounts for famous people that post like where their private jets go and stuff. It's publicly accessible information. He freaked out that a guy was doing that uh, about him. And there's other examples of, uh, I think Musk and also of, of different celebrities, you know, someone insults them or something and they just like freak out about it and have like many meltdowns and try and like, you know, destroy the person that, that took them down a peg. Uh, but again, you know, there's a lot of a lot of these billionaires spend a lot of money in trying to create this uh, version of themselves that if you look into the person really isn't real, like Bill Gates, for example, right? Trying to project what a great philanthropist and altruistic guy he is, you know, when if you actually look into Bill Gates and his whole deal with philanthropy, it has nothing to do with altruism at all. Right. You know, they're trying to project a certain version of themselves and mask the real self. So they're like masters at this whole false self thing, for sure. Do, do you think that it is both that they're trying to make other people see them as better than they are, as well as the fact is that they're trying to make others worse than they are, like in the sense of the way the government kind of yeah under their thumb? Well, I think that's pretty clear if you consider, you know, what I think is a pretty easy to document tendency among the elite and the powers that be to to view the little people as, you know, scum, really. Mm -hmm. And that's where a lot of like the whole eugenicist mindset comes from. Right. Supremacist. Yeah. Well, the idea it, they feel like they're so smart and they're, you know, so good at planning whatever that they can choose who lives and who dies on the extreme end of eugenic, you know, eugenics. And then, uh, you know, elsewhere on the eugenic spectrum, you know, that they get to choose who gets to reproduce and who does not get to reproduce. Mm -hmm. You know, they think they have the right to make those decisions for other people because those other people don't know what's best for them. So that's right. inherently looking at, you know, everyone else is lower than them. And I think this is sort of a taught behavior in these elite circles, especially people that are part of these like generational moneyed families. I think it's, you know, part of the upbringing. Mm -hmm. You could also point out that the social media, like you mentioned with Elon Musk, 
the, the more that they engage and it's the feedback loop. We've talked about a lot of the way social media works, that that becomes almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy by continuing to engage with that system. And, you know, and it just, it just, it's like, it's a continuous, it's a feedback loop. You know, you wonder well, if that's good. Oh, I would, well, I was just going to say that I think uh, social media is all about the false self. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you wanted to finish the point you were saying before I uh, go off into that. No, please. Yeah, this is this is where I think it gets really interesting in the idea of, of the how social media plays into it. Right. So, you know, if, if there's this need to publicly, you know, like we've talked about, narcissists have this need to publicly project a specific persona out into the public so that people view them a certain way and they're obsessed with how people view them, but it's not necessarily how they really are. So the Internet, I think, has not just um, taken that in, in, in tendency and narcissists to extreme levels, but it's also made people into narcissists who may not necessarily have been narcissists otherwise. Right. That's fascinating. And I, I like, like not just people that were already borderline sociopaths, but like just average children, teens that get pulled into this world. Like it makes me think of whether we want to get into specific craters or not, but very specific large craters out there that are very openly like negative against certain people. And yeah, that's, that, that's, that's very sad to think about. It's happening to a lot of unwitting children and teens and, and adults. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you look at the studies on like teens and social media, it makes kids really depressed to use right. it and it makes them feel bad about themselves. And paradoxically, perhaps, uh, most of those girls are trying to post pictures that are the most flattering. They spend a long, taking many pictures and picking one out of like, you know, 50 they might take, right? Or, you know, adjusting it with filters and all of this stuff. So they're trying to make themselves look as good as possible, but they end up feeling awful. So they're projecting something that's not really them and projecting that falseness out there and having this like sort of, you know, fake interaction that's all about this dopamine feedback loops and creating addictions in in, like in the brain to want to be in that is making people miserable. And so it's basically creating this false self where everything's great. Right. (laughs) And then privately, it's turning these people into, you know, feeling like their real self is inferior. And that's exactly what, you know, is the deal with narcissists. And, you know, obviously narcissists existed before social media. But my point here is that, um, you know, like I said a second ago, this is really making it um, extremely common, I think, among, you know, society where social media and the Internet is ubiquitous at this point. Yeah, which you kind of mentioned before we went live, the overlap, like bringing it back to the government point is that, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. If this entire like, let's just take the concept of Facebook, which I think we're all kind of aware now was a, not a military kind of project originally, that, that was maybe yeah. to literally turn people into narcissists and or sociopaths. And for the very purpose you were saying that it sort of creates this situation where then one, they're easier to rule and manipulate, but it makes them feel wor- better about who they are. Yeah, well, you know. You're basically creating people that feel awful about how they really are, and but they become addicted to this system and they yeah. like can't live without the uh, quote unquote approval, the likes that they're receiving from people that are reacting to the quote unquote false self. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like every abusive relationship, like you were mentioning in the beginning, right? I mean, it's the same kind of feedback cycle where you create you as long as you make someone feel like they're not good enough to be there then you can you can control what their outcome their actions and that's what's happening to everybody yeah but i think there's a there's a couple different 
levels here too. So like mm-hmm. when someone is, I, I mean, of course, narcissism, like anything like autism or um, any personality disorder, not that autism is a personality disorder, but you know, there's a spectrum of any sort of condition, you know, tends to fall on a spectrum. And I think narcissism's like that too. Mm-hmm. So you'll have like people that are like really extreme pathological narcissists. A lot of them tend to be like sociopathic. Even sometimes they tend to be psychopaths you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why I think maybe you have so many in positions of power too, because there's studies, right. About how psychopaths and sociopaths tend to like rise really high up the corporate ladder. They tend to be the top politicians right? Um, and all of this stuff too. And so, you know, people on that end of the spectrum are easy to control in the sense that you can give them stuff that over inflates their, the self that they publicly project out there. Right. And the stuff that they want. And a lot of times what those guys want is to dominate other people. Uh, they want control or they want everyone to think they're the best thing in the entire world. Celebrity. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So they're easy to control in in that sense. And then there's people, you know, on different parts of the spectrum. But ultimately, you know, if you're creating, uh, you know, a generation, you know, of teenagers that have had social media since they were really small and have be and their brains haven't fully developed and they're using it right and they become yeah. wired to these feedback loops i think the way of manipulating them is a little bit different than say the people on the far end of that of that narcissist spectrum that are you know too far yeah. gone to really rehabilitate in a sense well i i the first parallel for me and this maybe just because this is where i've been researching but you know you can obviously overlap with this things like the transgender movement and how these platforms are being used to create that same dynamic where these these young girls, primarily young girls today, something like 70 something percent, even though that was barely exist, it was mostly younger boys before that are all suddenly filled with the idea that they're not right, that they're that they're not they're, what they are currently is not good enough. Right. And that's or they're, that, Yeah. No, I was just going to say I was going to agree that they're othering you know, the biological self and yeah. looking to this other self that they're being told if you and invest your time and energy in this self, it will fix all of your problems. Right, right. And then the inherent underlying point that, you know, first, obviously, you're not good enough the way you are. But if you do this, and you change yourself for the image that we think you should be, then you will achieve happiness. But then what we're seeing is the exact opposite, just like the media platforms that they're desperately unhappy. And then many people speak it out about that today. And then that but that's in and of itself becomes another cycle. You know, for me, it's hard not to see this as something that's being done to people, not just a byproduct of malfeasance. You know, like we're saying, it's this all this is just one big abusive relationship. Well, definitely. I think, you know, the way power stays in power is by being, you know, abusive. And a lot of that abusive is, you know, there's a lot of different ways that abuse manifests. Right. So there's like um, the violence of the state. The state creates chaos. Right. Mm hmm. And abusers do that too. They'll create chaos and then you'll be like, I'll do anything to stop this chaos, this crazy explosive anger, um, just to make it go away, whatever you want, you know? And then, so at the, you know, the elites also do that, you know, we'll only stop. Uh, exactly. Well, sanctions is a great example, but you know, bombing all sorts of, you know, tools of, of the state or, you know, state violence and other or false flags you know we'll only stop this if you give in to what we are asking for right hmm. the parallel so like i mean it really is the, exactly the same thing when you think about it 
Yeah, but you know what's crazy? Like in my case, I it, it's probably because of how I grew up in a household that was messed up. But like as an adult, like I had a hard time being able to recognize people doing this, probably because I've had low self-esteem my whole life. Mm-hmm. You know? And so I just uh I was really good at seeing how governments and the state and the powers that be abuse us, but in my own personal life, it took me way longer than it should have. Why do you think that is? Why do you think, see, especially from someone like you that is very clearly able to, to pick out the things many others can't see, right? So why, why do you think it took you so long to recognize that in your most immediate relationship? Um, because I think it, a lot of it has to do with like when, when I was a, a kid, I, uh, was made to feel guilty. Everything, a lot of, a lot of narcissistic households, when they have kids, they put kids in certain positions and you can read about this, um, you know, anywhere they talk about narcissistic parents, you know, they'll have one kid that's the quote unquote golden child is the term for it. And the other kid mm-hmm. is the scapegoat that everything gets blamed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was the scapegoat. I was the oldest kid. And my daughter was the, my daughter, my sister was the the golden child. And it's not like she had a great time and she didn't turn out to be a narcissist, but she also had a lot of, you know, trauma from growing up. I think it was just different for me. So I was used to being um, blamed for everything, including stuff I I didn't do uh, and just kind of constantly devalued throughout my, uh, you know, entire childhood and, and adolescence. So I was just kind of used to being you know, treated poorly. And, you know, when it happened to me later on as an adult, I was just, you know, it felt familiar in a way, you know, which is weird, I guess. Uh, But when you grow up in an environment like that, you know, it's really, it was really easy to guilt trip me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that was, but, you know, I was made to feel bad like that all the time as a kid. And I guess it just was sort of wired in my brain differently than it is from people that don't have that experience. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we're all raised to, to you know, revere the parents and even the same thing with the government. You know, we're, we're supposed to you, you trust authority. You, you, you know, you, you take direction as a kid in school. And so it, it's hard for, for a child, especially to stand back and reflect on that not being the norm, you know. A yeah, good, totally. I was going to say a good example in like a relationship example is something that we're everyone's familiar with. There's books written about it. It's called Negging. Right. And that's that's a basic tactic of just making somebody else feel unsettled, lesser than. So you disarm them to a degree to where you can essentially manipulate them to the point of sexuality. And it's terrible when you think about it. But it's ultimately that's a narcissistic tactic. Same thing we're talking about, really. But from a, you know, for family level or from a government level. Yeah. Good point. So. Another parallel that I think is kind of interesting is that, you know, the the government, the powers that be the elite, they'll publicly project empathy when their actions show anything but. And this is kind of interesting, too, because narcissists don't experience empathy like normal people do. They basically have to uh, mimic it. But they know they notice that how important empathy is in interpersonal relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they know that if they can convince someone they are being empathetic, then they can, you know, I guess add another tool to their manipulation tool belt. You know, how what do you know that what the prevalence is, or just what the overlap is with narcissism and socio sociopathy? Because that, no, that's not like a very similar ta- characteristic. Well, I think there is a lot of overlap because essentially you're not really caring about other people's feelings. I think the way, you know, narcissists tend to approach other people is what can I get out of this person? What can this person do for me? How can I get this person to do this thing that I need them to do? 
not like I want to have a genuine friendship or romantic or, you know, parent child connection with this person. If the, if when I, the more I think about it, I would say if I had to put a pin in it, it's that a narcissist still feel like they, they still, it's ultimately to make themselves feel better about who they are or, you know, they're insecure. Whereas a sociopath maybe doesn't care at all, right? It's more about trying to fit in with the people that, you know, I mean, I'm not an expert, but that seems like that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe that's possible, but you know, I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know. I think there's a couple different ways of, of looking at, uh, these people. And I don't think they're all necessarily going to be the same. Uh, but I do think a lot of narcissists do have sociopathic tendencies. I mean, that would make the most sense because they basically look at people from a utilitarian perspective and they approach a lot of their relationships that way. You know, what can I get uh, out of this person and, and how can I use them? Right. Yeah. So anyway, going back to this point of, of empathy, you know, mm. if, if they are trying to use someone and they can act like they care about a person's feelings, it can go pretty far. And if you think about, you know, even back a couple, probably not now, it doesn't work anymore, but like for the elites and like mainstream media and all of that, a lot of these public figures, politicians, right. will like project that they feel bad about something. Or uh, they'll put out a story like, look, this this happened to, you know, this important person and you should feel bad for them or they did something caring. So like the earliest example of this in terms of like PR, um, you know, uh, manipulations, I guess, of the public is someone like John D. Rockefeller, the country's first billionaire who is a, a total garbage human. And the way they tried to turn his reputation around uh, was by, you know, showing videos of him, like giving money to, to ch like little pennies and, and coins to like children, like, look how nice I'm being and right. stuff. I remember that there was a whole campaign about the big, the silver dime, right? It was given all the children come up and he hands out little dimes. You know, that's, it's, 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 that was, yeah, that, yeah. Understand it, that was like an actual marketing campaign, right? That wasn't organic totally. at all. Yeah. And I think that's really common with false selves of narcissists too, is that they want to project someone who's really empathetic. Like I, I care about other people. And I think the powers that be want us to think that also. And I think we did touch on that a little bit before, but it's, um, I think that's definitely a, a commonality uh, between the two groups for sure, at least tactic wise. Uh, I think it's a really important point. I mean, that's kind of why I was asking about the sociopath overlap because empathy is, I mean, something you would argue a narcissist is aware of. They clearly feel they, they're, they're, I mean, I, it's hard to say because they're ultimately it's about themselves, but ultimately well, I, go ahead. I think they know when people expect them to show it that they need right. to, uh, yeah. To not be an outlier, you know? Yeah, to fit in, essentially, yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but the, what you said is a really important point to think about. You know, so projecting empathy is, is you know, the same overlaps. You can see that exactly the same way. Like, and, and the same time, doing so in many ways that tries to, that the attempt is to make you feel guilty. Maybe not about, like, take an example of foreign policy, where, you know, showing a picture of a child that's, you know, in a bombing, like, like Oman from Syria, for example, you know, so where then you somehow feel guilty. Like you didn't do enough and really it's all an illusion, you know, yeah, so you didn't, yeah. I'm sure we'll do that with Ukraine, you know, mm -hmm. uh, look at this sad situation. We should have sent another 24 billion to Ukraine. Right. Why didn't you do it? Or why didn't you listen to John Bolton who said, don't worry about escalation, blow everything up. <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Well, and at the same Amazing time, people still listen to him. I know. Mind blowing. <laughs> 
Yeah. I always point out that at the same time, you've got people on the other side of the world, you know, who are standing there watching people who they know are killing their families stand up and act like they care or gain empathy from others, you know, and that's a different, like a byproduct of that, that is very hard to like that, that causes extremists. We've always talked about that. Yeah. Well, another good example too, like think about the fundraising campaign for that awful earthquake in Haiti and yeah. how all that money that was raised with like the Obamas and the Clintons, they built six houses and the rest of it, they don't know where the money went. Right. Yeah. But that whole campaign was feigning empathy for the people that the people running it. Right. right. Feigning right. empathy uh, for people in Haiti, knowing that the people that were donating wanted to help those people and then uh, taking the money and running. Basically. And then even another aspect, another dynamic of that is that then they take that and do terrible things with it, which is what happened. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So it's happening in, in Maui right now, I think, by the way, it's already happening. Uh, when it's surprised. Well, it was like the Red Cross, right? That was involved with that in Haiti. So, you yeah. know, why wouldn't they do the same for the funds they're collect connecting, uh, collecting for Maui right now? And actually, Obama was one of the big voices. You need to donate to the Red Cross for Haiti. And now he's the one saying donate to the Red Cross for Maui. Right. Hmm. So um, he's obviously uh, not a good person and he projects a false self to the public. For sure. And I think a lot of these politicians do. And But again, I think these guys at the top levels, they have um, complete like PR teams dedicated to shaping that false self for mm -hmm. them, whereas narcissists don't necessarily. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Well, I, I yeah. would say again that the sociopath, well, I mean, it goes both ways that they really do train their entire lives. Like that's I've often heard that most, specifically sociopaths are better they, they will be better at emulating emotion than people that actually have emotions because they, because they just are their entire lives are training to be to project what people are wanting to see you know yeah exactly exactly yeah mm -hmm. and the more convincing it is the less likely people are to question if someone tries to be like actually that's not a good person yeah right i mean obama is such a great example i mean even now like you you what you watch him talk and if you don't know this person, he very, very clearly projects a, a, someone who cares, someone who's there for people, you know, exactly. that's, it, but we know that's not true. I mean, it, at least in his actions, so he, he's a case, a case study for that, for sure. But I mean, the question then becomes, do you think this person is, well, let's just move Obama aside. Do you think there's examples of people that are maybe not fully aware of how they're being used in that way that are, that are being kind of trained as a budding new narcissist in government, for example? Well, I'm sure there's like a, uh, I, you know, as you move up the ladder in politics and you're sort of following other people by example, and they're like right. this, you're like, this is the behavior I have to engage in to be successful. And obviously, once you get to the higher up levels of the government or really any really corrupt organization, you're going to get to the levels where you realize the extent of how, you know, corrupt everything is and how the people are, you know, there's a lot of theft going on and illegal activity. And then obviously, you know, you only get into that world if you're uh, down to participate in it. Right. Yeah. Right. And compromisable typically. Right. With right. Right. Yeah. Sure. And so, you know, you have people that are willing to operate in that type of environment are probably willing to be like the people they're around. Right. right. Or they were right. before. And I'm sure a lot of these people are pegged early on in their political careers or, you know, whatever the career field is for those qualities. Hmm. Yeah, I agree completely. You you mentioned the the false self. 
which is a real, that's, it's a really fascinating conversation. We were talking about that beforehand, right? The idea of how that applies to the direction all this seems to be going in. H how do you think that plays into all of this in regard to how they're essentially training us through all these platforms? So <clears throat> uh, with social media, I, I think the whole point is to try and get us to identify more with the false self, which at this point is really, you know, in the context of social media, really the internet is the digital self, right? Yeah. To get us to um, identify more with that than who we actually are at hmm. the end of the day. That is and everywhere I think, right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, you look at a project like the metaverse and digital twinning and all of that. And it's really obvious, you know, I, we've talked about before how a lot of what's going on right now, the point is to lead us there. But a lot of people aren't interested in the metaverse. Like they tried to launch it, launch it during COVID and it was a flop. And a lot of what happened during COVID with the lockdowns was to get us super sucked into the digital world all the time because we couldn't go outside and we could only connect with other people by computer, right? So I think it was a big push. And I think perhaps they expected it, uh, that change to happen a lot faster during COVID than it actually did mm -hmm. because the metaverse again was a flop. And so you have to continue incrementalizing it, uh, how, you know, uh, how intense that uh, connection with the digital false self, whatever becomes in people to get people to want to be in the metaverse or have digital twins. And yeah. you have to, at the same time, make people so miserable uh, in their real selves or in their, you know, in reality in order for that to happen. And when we talked about the metaverse, which was a few, I, I guess it was last year, mm -hmm. or maybe it was the year before, uh, 20, you know, I, yeah, it's hard to say now. I think it was Brad. I know. Well, I've been in a hospital for 10 weeks, so I have like no concept of, yeah. of time anymore. Um, but we were we were talking about how there was like, a, I think he was a former CIA guy writing in some MSM thing about the metaverse. And he was basically saying, by the time uh, your real life is so miserable, you'll prefer the metaverse. And he basically like said the quiet part out loud, very gross. Usually gross one dude. of them. Yeah. <laughs> but I, yeah. And so I think the way it started with social media, you know, first is like what we already talked about, like making mm -hmm. people have low self-esteem because uh, they're trying to make themselves online and publicly look the best they possibly can. And then eventually there's this gap that they, you know, they're putting yeah. all these filters on their pictures and all this stuff, but that's not how they really look when they look in the mirror. Right. What you're saying of the gap, it makes it creates an unsustainable or rather a unreachable goal. Right. So they're just never happy with who they actually are. Yeah. And they'll, and, and, and they'll never be happy because mm -hmm. this is happening like in teens and kids and they're in their formative years and they're going to be, you know, it's going to be kind of hard to undo. And so it plays into this other stuff you're talking about or, or that you brought up you know, that's, you know, seeking out kids right now, but there's also like this metaverse stuff and the immersive gaming, um, and, and all of that is also appealing to those same groups. And it's essentially the same. It's this othering hmm. of the real self and trying to get you to be like, well, what I want to be my real self is that online self is that digital self, right. false self. Man. And I think, mm -hmm. well, I was just going to ask you, what do you, what do you think? We'll finish your thought, but what do you think the you know, the reasoning is to drive people into that because the narcissistic side is clear for why they want to create, uh, let make us feel lesser than, but what's the, I mean, the, obviously the bigger implications are the big, the, the great reset kind of direction of all that, but do you yeah, see that yeah. as related? Is that one of the yeah, same? Uh, yeah, I think so because 
I think the more people feel like they need that digital false self in their lives, Mm -hmm. the more addicted to it they are, the more they need it. They won't give up uh, their access to social media. They won't give up their internet access. They'll do anything to keep the smartphone or their connection to that digital self. They'll do anything to keep it. Anything at all. Yeah. I mean, if you're looking for a connection, it's easy just to drive people into a point to where they're desperate to maintain what they've created in this metaverse and then are, then insert the digital ID verification. Yeah, you know, then exactly. You yeah, exactly. But this this is all coming before the metaverse. You don't need the metaverse for what I just talked about to happen. I mean, right. think about Twitter right now. Twitter has rolled out the blue check. And soon, uh, if you're not a blue check, you won't be able to use Twitter. Yeah, you know, I, and, I was, oh, sorry, mm-hmm. good. I was going to say, I, talk, I want to talk about it later. Probably, I just saw today that, that they're already starting to roll out what you and I have already predicted is that that the the next level of the verification. So they get you, you know, because it's right now just a number. So the next, most people that already kind of got used to what the benefits are they're getting aren't going to turn down, you know, an iris scan or who who knows what comes next, you know? Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, the goalpost is already starting to move, right? With everything about new Twitter. Uh, I'm not going to call it X. It's I know. Twitter. <laughs> Musk Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah, because I mean, X was um, Elon Musk's like failed bank from the late 90s. So it, it's always his ambition. And he's been open about this with new Twitter is to turn it into his words, half of the financial system, if not more. So um, basically, you know, there's people that are completely addicted to social media. They're on it constantly. They're on their phone constantly. It's not everyone that uses social media, right? But there is a group there that needs it mm-hmm. or they're addicted to the Internet right. and they and they can't live without it. So uh, what you and I have talked about in the past and what the plan that's been on the books a long time, even before what's happening now with new Twitter is to uh, force people to uh, connect their internet access to some form of government-issued ID. And this was tried out in the U.S. Uh, Obviously didn't get very far, uh, but they drew up plans for it and they called it the driver's license for the internet. So a government-issued ID is tied probably through your internet service provider. So you can't get online without you know, them knowing everything you do online because your, you know, access through the gateway to even get to the internet is everything you do online is going to be tied to that ID. They're going to know exactly who you are, right? Mm. And that was the ambition then. And that's what's going to happen now. So a lot of my work that, you know, I originally did for TLAV on stuff like the the WEF partnership against cybercrime, which is like the FBI, the Department of Justice, uh, British intelligence, Israeli intelligence, all of the big banks, um, you know, it's within the WEF, uh, PayPal and all these other entities are there. Um, they're very open about that being their ambition for how to end, quote unquote, cybercrime on the Internet. Everyone's got to have right. an ID to get online. Right. And there's been a push, too. Uh, and Musk is one of them before he even bought Twitter. Uh, authenticate all real humans on social right. media. That's what that. Musk said in the tweet. Yeah. Um But there's been a push for this elsewhere, especially among uh, officials, for example, in Australia, campaigning against misinformation. No one should be allowed to be an anonymous troll and all of this stuff, right? And so now what you have with new Twitter, right, is uh, this effort to, and it's not just tying your government-issued ID to new Twitter. The way they're rolling it out, you also have to take a selfie 
and upload your government uh, issued ID. And the selfie extracts, it says it in the fine print, biometric data. And that's run through an Israeli company. This is a small side note, but do you that's think- a partner company of Amdocs, by the way. Uh, just thought that was uh, might be fun to point out to some people. Partner yeah, company well, of Amdocs, everyone's favorite Israeli intelligence front company since like right. the early two thousands, <laughs> or any number of other things you've done on the overlapped Israeli intelligence with all these things in the in the United States. But but do you think that the fail the selfie? I mean, it says biometrics, but that doesn't. It's, there's plenty of things that could mean. Do you think it's taking iris scans? Do you think that's happening with what they're doing? Well, I think if it's your selfie, it's not necessarily going to be an iris scan because I think you have to use a, a specific type of camera. This is going to be a selfie you take with your. I guess your computer webcam or your your phone or something. So probably I we'll not. Just, I guess I just wonder. But if I think it's facial be... recognition. It's facial recognition where they map your yeah. face. Right. Which yeah. Just as just as alarming. But yeah, I, I definitely see this coming. And then, you know, kind of bringing it back to the same point is that then people are going to feel obligated or or they have to. Like these kids are addicted, as you said, and they're going to they're going to give this stuff up willingly, whether they realize it's bad or not. And that it just same cycle, you know, into the next technocratic world of it. Totally. I'll I'll give you an example. So, you know, I was um, in a relationship with someone that's ostensibly against all this stuff, digital ID, CBDC and all of this stuff. And uh, one day uh, before bed, he was like, you know, you're not going to be uh, realistically be able to resist the CBDC. And I got like defensive. I was like, yeah, uh, of course I can. And uh, that's what I'm trying to do. And like my whole life is dedicated to resisting that system. And then he got mad. I was defensive and kept countering with all this stuff. Like, well, then the kids won't be able to live a normal life. And, you know, we won't be able to buy stuff that we need and all of this stuff. And I was just like, whoa, you know, kind of blown away by that. But people you know, like uh, that are sort of in that narcissist category, like the convenience, they Mm. might publicly project again, this false self that they align with this and that the way they want people to view them. Right. But at the end of the day, they like what they've become accustomed to, you know, even even people that are against it will be like, yeah, I'll take it because it means I can keep access to all that stuff. I don't want to live without that stuff give them more power over their ability to manipulate the way people see them. Well, not just that, right? But, you know, if you think about, like, narcissists in general, they're trying to get people in their lives to basically cater to their every whim, which is actually impossible. It's like a bottomless pit that you're constantly trying to fill with dirt um, when you're in those type of situations because the goalposts keep moving and it's never enough because you're basically trying to fill a a hole that's, a you know... Uh, a thing that they have to sort out in themselves. You can't possibly um, fix it for them. So, you know, they they are trying to get people to, to take care of them. They don't really want to do it themselves, you right. know? And so like, they like that convenience a lot. I mean, the same person I'm talking about too, refused to stop unlocking their phone with their face, but was also very against the use of facial recognition by police, even though all the big tech companies pass that facial recognition stuff on your phone to police, but -hmm. it's more convenient. Right. 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 It's just, it's hypocrisy, right. At the core of it all, right. These are, you're, you're, you're a fake, as you said, the false self, all, all to your benefit and the expense of other people essentially is how it seems to work out. But you know, how, how do you, how do you 
actually have a relationship with somebody when you're like that. Not to not to veer away. Sorry, if you want to keep going, it just popped into my head. It just seems impossible, you know? Well, yeah, because you can't, basically what happens when you're in a relationship, whether they're your parent or your boss or your boyfriend or girlfriend, is that, like I said, you're, they're manipulating you to try and, you know, do whatever to keep them stable, but they're not, they're inherently not stable. So no matter what you do and what hoop you jump through and, you know, uh, they'll tell you everything's your fault all the time, no matter what you try and do to change yourself, it will never fix the situation. So ultimately, depending on how long you're there for, um, it happens to everyone. Eventually you end up feeling hollowed out. Like you have nothing left because you're in a relationship where you've been literally giving everything you can possibly give, um, And at the end of the day, I mean, what you're basically giving, no matter what they're asking of you or telling you they need or whatever, you're giving energy and you eventually are just left without any, I mean, left feeling like you have none and that you have nothing and that you are nothing because at the same time you're being continuously devalued for not being good enough by this person. They're emotional vampires, right? Like literally, you know, well, go ahead. No, no, no. Go, you go. I, I was just going to add the, the gaslighting is what you're talking about. It's gaslighting. And that's another overlap to what we're dealing with every day with power structures, you know, that just constantly telling you, you know, it's all the same point, but it's just different levels of this. You know, the gaslighting is very clear in all that. Yeah. So gaslighting is interesting because if you think about where the term comes from, it's from this movie. Uh, I think it's from the 50s. And it's, it's essentially a man with who with malicious intent wants to convince his wife that she's mentally ill. And basically, he takes the gas lamps in the house, which is where the term gaslighting comes from, right? Oh, uh, and he and he it. slowly he slowly dims them. And when she comments that they've been dimmed, he tells her that they haven't been dimmed and that there must be something wrong with her. And oh. over time, is gradually convincing her that she's insane, and making her doubt her ability uh, to observe and perceive reality and the goal of gaslighting and by the way gaslighting is always done with malicious intent the goal of gaslighting is to have it so that you no longer feel comfortable uh, defining your own reality and you become dependent on someone else to define your reality and that person who obviously did this to you a horrible thing to do to someone but they did this to you with malicious intent so that they could define your reality to suit their needs and their whims yeah, like the, no no concern in any moment about how that makes the other person feel. I mean, that's that's actually, I've never heard that before. That's really interesting. And that's exactly what we're talking about, right? I mean, that is narcissism. It's the, it's, a ta- it's, a, it's clearly, you tell me, but that sounds like a very prominent part of this whole thing. It, it, I think it is a prominent part because it's part of, a, it's a key way in which you try and convince this other person that they um, can't, uh, to make them dependent on the narcissist, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, just eventually so that they can perceive uh, they don't feel like they can perceive re- reality anymore. So they're dependent on the person that gaslit them, who again, oftentimes will feign empathy. Oh, I feel so bad that you're having all these mental problems, right? Um, trying to make you think that like, they're the only ones that can help you, you know, making you feel like you have to depend on them. And at the same time, that person, if they're a narcissist or, you know, also in the parallel, like the elites, right, are trying to get you to serve them uh, and they're trying to control you so that you constantly are serving them and giving to them. Right. And, and giving you nothing back. And solidifying in your mind all the time that you are the problem when that's the opposite. Right. Yeah. The parallel to the government elitist discussion is incredible with that. 
I mean, that's that is like it's, it's yeah. like they're, they're operating out of the handbook. It's what, exactly what they're doing. Well, I again, I think a lot of the people at the top, I, I mean, to do what they're doing to the world, they have yeah. to be <laughs> narcissist, right? right. And, and psychopaths and sociopaths. So. I guess my, I guess my question is, you know, where I might not that we can answer. It's, it's kind of just a general, you know, is that a byproduct of the fact that they're sociopaths in those positions, or is this a deliberate effort? to create the situation, to drive us in this direction. It's probably both, but. With the elites, it is definitely a deliberate effort. And AI is a huge part of it. I'm actually, as soon as I'm, um, you know, free again, going to be working on something for Catherine Austin Fitz that's uh, exactly about this and artificial intelligence. It's uh, going to be about a little bit more than just what I'm going to say here. But um, there, so for T-Lab a few years ago, right, I wrote about the no- National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Mm-hmm. And the head of that is Eric Schmidt. And Eric Schmidt's uh, best friend for life and mentor is Henry Kissinger. And Henry Kissinger and him wrote a book about AI. So these are basically the people like setting essentially with a huge influence over AI policy at the national security level and beyond, right? So this is basically how the quote unquote deep state wants to use artificial intelligence. And the stuff they say in this book is so insane. Uh, so uh, the overview of the point that's relevant here, because obviously they say a lot more in the book, um, but they basically say artificial intelligence can see realities that we cannot see because it's so much smarter than us. And then in another part of the book, they say, the more we come to depend on artificial intelligence as our personal assistance, and if you think about it, right, uh, AI is now creating music, it's creating art, it's uh, replacing journalists, it's writing uh, fiction and nonfiction for us. It's doing all of these things humans used to do, right? We'll become so dependent on AI doing all of that stuff that their words, we will become cognitively diminished to the mm. point where we become dependent on AI and we can't live without it. And the people that become dependent on AI that way will no longer over a few generations be able to communicate with the people that don't. Oh my God. Basically, like that extreme of a change in people's minds, basically reducing us, making us so stupid that we can't function without AI. And because AI sees a different reality than we do. And they also note in the book, AI has no morality. It has no emotions. All of that, if it is there, is programmed by these people. Right. So you become dependent on AI to tell you what's real and what's not what reality is and they don't see reality like we see reality right. so it's about people being uh i don't know what you want to call it transformed really into essentially a different species where we can't perceive reality ourselves anymore in ai that these guys program does it for us My so God. that is like the same end goal as gaslighting but taken like so far beyond, but, you know, the goal, exactly. But if the goal is to define another person's reality to suit the needs and whims of the abuser, uh, yeah, man, that's the biggest plan for AI. Cause they plan to have it, you know, write all the news stories. Um, they can deep fake any video or any photograph, uh, they want now. And I think a lot of this is probably playing out on social media, like right now, because, uh, you know, on Twitter, especially, I mean, a, a lot of these AI guys, you know, Elon Musk is an AI guy, right. Mm-hmm. And, and was, uh, behind, I think one of the co-founders of open AI for chat GPT, chat GPT is all over this Kissinger mm-hmm. Schmidt book, mm-hmm. all over it. 
And it was before its big launch where everyone was like, oh, I got to use it. It's gone viral. Um, You know, this stuff is already happening. And in that book, which I think was published in 2020, they're basically like, yeah, AI has already basically taken over our lives and people already can't live without it. So they're expecting this to continue. And eventually people are going to have to say, no, I'm not going to interact with this crap anymore. And, and build something else. But my point is people have become so addicted to it and addicted to the feelings they get from that have, you know, been created through this whole dynamic we're talking about with the false self and this public projection that there's a lot of people that won't be able to live without it. Yeah, right. It's already being set up now, like you're saying. I mean, they really mm-hmm. are built, made in their own image. I mean, you're having sociopaths literally make this thing into a sociopath is what it sounds like. But what what what's crazy to me though, let me, let me ask it this way for you, because you've written a lot about the art like whether or not they're truly able to achieve that does in your mind is this them pretending this is artificial intelligence and it's just basically emulating what they are or is this actual or will it be actual artificial intelligence that just acts in that way because they've made it that way no okay so i think artificial intelligence and we've talked about this before part of it is a psyop it's not as far along as they want because one of the things we talked about not that long ago uh, was a, we called it the Google AI sentient psyop, remember? And there right. was this guy that was trying to say that Google's AI had become sentient and had basically become like the singularity, right. you know? That's kind of what I was wrenching. <laughs> I should have made that clear. Not not just AI, but specifically like sentient AI, like which is what they're aiming for. Is that how you see this or is, are they, is it still part okay, of the lie? No. They're making it it's so gonna, Yeah. The reason they want you to think that it's like sentient and all this stuff, they're not going to be able to achieve that. I think that part of it's a psyop, but they will have it feign empathy, just like narcissists do. Man, they're literally making narcissistic artificial intelligence. (laughs) But that's the point, because the the AI, they admit, is like built-in sociopathic. It doesn't have those things that make us human. It's there to manipulate us for them. That's the whole point. I mean, obviously there's tasks that AI does better and can like make things more convenient, but these people are telling you what they want to use it for. And it's like a narcissist on steroids. Gotta be honest, it's it's kind of blowing my mind right now. You're talking, so I mean, we're talking about them, the the people in authority who we all seem to recognize are sociopathic narcissists, building artificial intelligence that they're already using to design the way our lives are being maintained or how you see that. And they're literally creating it in a way that's, it's like they're like, and then overlapping that with the technocracy mindset. They want to be like this. They want to make yeah. themselves forever. And it's just, it's terrifying. I mean, how do you stop something like that? Um, okay. So right, that's possible question. I'm just like blown, but my mind is kind of blown by this. <laughs> well, um, one thing, I mean, if you look up like, you know, anywhere about narcissism. How do you deal with a narcissist? How do you end things with a narcissist? How do you get a narcissist out of your life? The answer across the board is the same. It's go no contact. Perfect. If you can go no contact, I mean, there's some people that try and make it lesser contact, but honestly, uh, in my experience, no contact is what you have to do because you, you give them a little bit and they'll, they'll try and suck you back in. I, I mean, every I, time I think that's Mm-hmm. just the fact that I, lo- I didn't expect like that when I said that I thought it was an impossible question but really what you said is exactly right you just get you you no longer engage with artificial intelligence or the technology they're putting in front yeah. of you right it's the same answer so yeah. with the powers that be in the elite that are like this it is it, it's exactly the same you're right it's go no contact right 
with these systems and build something else. And that's what you, me, Derek, and a bunch of other people have been talking about for years now. But, you know, I think some people, you know, like I sort of said earlier, like I've been good at seeing how this plays out on the government level, but not so great about seeing how, you know, seeing it in my own personal life because of how I grew up and stuff. Um, Obviously, I've learned from that, I hope. Uh, But, you know, I think there's people that maybe have the opposite problem. And they're really good at seeing it in their personal life, but they don't believe the government will do it because their parents believe in the government and everyone they know has always believed in the government. I mean, maybe that's changing now to an extent, but there's still a lot of people that buy into that stuff, you know? I agree. Yeah, that's interesting. You're right. It's the kind of reverse But if you dynamic. think about it, yeah, about is, is there a toxic person in your life? You know, how do you deal with that? And they'll be like in a second, oh, yeah, go no contact. But what about a government that's trying to enslave you? Right. That's pretty toxic, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, so I mean, that that's very difficult, though, right? Because that's, you know, depending on which way you look at it, like just taking on the personal level, you know, the, the idea of somebody going no contact with somebody who's become a central part in how they see themselves. I mean, that that's near impossible for some people. Yeah, sure. Uh, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, like in a narcissistic relationship, like, like, like I talked about earlier, you end up feeling like nothing and with no energy, you're hollowed out and you lose mm-hmm. control over your life. You lose complete control over your life because uh, they they want it all. They want all the control. They want complete domination. And it's not necessarily because they want all the stuff you have. It's like the feeling. I yeah. think. Yeah, I agree. But other people that like, you know, are you know, psychologists and stuff essentially say the same thing because it helps sort of numb that those feelings that bubble up, bubble up from the real self. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, I mean, so you essentially get driven to a point of, you know, you're already desperate, but now you're desperate in every sense. So you might as well go no contact and be desperate without yeah. causing it. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. I mean, it gets to a point where you just can't keep going. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people with the powers that be obviously haven't gotten there yet. And I, things probably have to get worse for enough people to get it. But people that know now what's going to come, I think the answer is pretty clear, but I mean, you can't control what people do obviously i mean i hope people are trying to go no contact but it's it's a it's a whole issue of it disentangling yourself so narcissists when they get involved with you obviously you know it's a slightly different situation when you're a child of a narcissistic parent uh but the it, it takes time to disentangle yourself it's not an immediate thing at least a lot of the time uh and it's not easy but it's it's the only it's really the only way to heal yeah. And I, you know, I think the the point being is that you don't, even if you just break contact, you still have to change as a person, as, as you know, you out, without that person. And so that you're right, it's a whole process to go through. And I, that's why I think with this, this conversation will help people see that in the sense of the way the government is acting in their lives. Cause you're, cause it's the same thing. If you look at a personal relationship, it's like trying to tell somebody they're in a cult, you know, you, you just don't want to hear, yeah. it. you know, so it's, there's yeah. a process for trying to break through that for people. You know, I'm glad you brought up cult because, you know, in cults, right, you have, you know, there's Stockholm syndrome. And sometimes you hear that about cult survivors, Mm -hmm. trauma bonding, those kind of terms get thrown around. But I think, you know, and I've heard this from other people before. I can't really remember where, but, you know, there's there's people that have said that, like, people have Stockholm syndrome with the government. Right. Because you're grown up being taught that the government's going to be there for you. And it's basically like a parent. And ever since the beginning of American history, it's been one 
long, steady road of progress leading to eventual greatness. Well, I mean, that's the narrative in like public school textbooks. I mean, I went to public school. I mean, it's not real at all. So you're like fed this illusion and a lot of people can't handle the reality, you know? And even if the system, the reality is there and the government is abusing them, they'll still hold on to that, right? And the same is true in a in a narcissistic relationship a lot of the times because um, uh, this doesn't happen with narcissistic parents because like I said earlier, kids are stuck with the parents. Uh, but with narcissistic relationships, there's this initial phase that starts off this trauma bonding thing. And people tend to call it love bombing. So it's like the early stages of the relationship and you're just showered with affection by the narcissist. They're so nice to you. Uh, and they end up it, they do this thing that's called mirroring where you'll like, you'll say you like something and they'll be like, Oh, I love that thing too. And they probably never even heard of it, but they like basically become, uh, um, they study you essentially. Yeah. And are trying to present themselves basically as your soulmate because they're so much like you. And what's, what are the odds that we're so much like each other and all of this stuff? Because like a serial killer. Uh, I mean, it sounds uh, like <laughs> it's just so alarming. Yeah. You know, someone yes. that's literally studying your every move and then emulating that, it's like they want to become you. It's terrifying. Well, 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 like earlier, like I mentioned with empathy, how they sort of mimic it. I think this is kind of the same. This is how I get someone to fall in love with me mm-hmm. because right. they just, they've studied it and, and done it enough times hmm. that they know. So after that phase ends, you know, they start you know, the abuse might start and then they start doing this thing that, you know, as far as the terminology goes, they'll call it breadcrumbing, right? Where basically like, um, you know, there will be abuse and then there'll be like a glimmer of the behavior that was in that love bombing stage, Hmm. right? Or a period of calm where they act like that person again. And so, and then it'll go back to the abuse. And so you're left thinking, oh, I can fix this person. Or if I do what they tell me to do and and what they're telling me to do, and I accept that I really am the problem 100% of the time, which in no relationship, it's like that. Um, You know, then that person will come back and we can have the perfect relationship like I thought it was going to be in the beginning. And they'll just string you along that way for a long time. And that's essentially what trauma bonding is in the narcissistic relationship. But You'll, you know, I think the way the government does that is more with like a PR campaign, you know, they'll, they'll manage it that way and be like, oh, well, the government's on this awful thing. Oh, well, look over here. Look at the nice thing the government's done. Or look, Joe Biden's with his cute dogs. Don't mind that they've eaten, almost eaten a bunch of (laughs) secret service people or that, you know, his son's insane and they're super corrupt. And oh, look, they hung stockings for their grandkids and all this stuff, you know, I mean, yeah that's an important part of it too, is the the whole, you know, pr- the basically just trying to earn that, you know, trying to act like project that out to the world and what they do. Like you mentioned something before, actually, when you said like farming sympathy, you know, it's like that, that's something that it seems that is, is absolutely necessary for these people to maintain what they're doing is to, you know, like, I guess it's the same point from the beginning, actually, the idea that they mm-hmm. to project that. So people see them that way, you know, and it's kind of full circle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, well, there's this other thing too, like in that PR campaign that the government does. So like they'll have the ones where they make the leaders, the people in charge, like, oh, look what great people they really are with PR stuff. But there's this thing with narcissists too, that's sort of um, 
well, a lot of times I've seen it referred to as the smear campaign. So usually when narcissists realize they can't keep using a person or that person is no longer serving them the way they want, they discard them. But before they discard or if, you know, at some point, you know, uh, it, they don't necessarily have to be thinking about discarding the person, but in the eventuality that they decide to, they they start slowly saying, um, you know, behind their back, like, oh, yeah, well, the person I'm dating is actually crazy to some people here and there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like an insurance policy in a sense. So they have certain people primed to be on their side when things finally go right. south. Very calculating. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so I think the government does this too. Like, you know, they've essentially been setting up for years that everyone that doesn't vote for the Democratic Party is a domestic terrorist. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah, well, you create hyperbolic terms for, you know, they they encapsulate everybody in one category as something that's ridiculous and crazy. Totally. And there's a lot of twisting of words, which also happens with narcissists, you know, so like someone that doesn't want to give their child every vaccine is automatically anti-vax. Exactly. Hates every vaccine or people that just want people to have the right to choose, even if they've gotten all the vaccines themselves, anti-vax, you know, and there's like this, um, I mean, that's really common for, for narcissists to do too. Um, uh, I have a ton of examples there. I don't even know if I can pick one, but (laughs) you know, you see it all the time with, with these people too. And another thing that's really common with narcissists also is that they don't have, they don't allow people in their lives, the people they abuse to have boundaries. They don't allow healthy boundaries at all. So in the case of narcissistic parents, they see children, their children as extensions of themselves. And so like they don't give their children privacy at all. Like, so for example, um, like when I was a kid, I'd get, um, you know, my uh, mother would have keys to every part of the house. So like, even if I was like going to the bathroom, uh, she could come in and scream at me. Like Hmm. I wasn't even allowed to have that time to myself. She'd go through all of my stuff. Um, I obviously didn't keep a diary because she'd look for them, you know, search my room multiple times a day. You know, you're not allowed to have privacy at all. And well, the powers that be, if you think about it, uh, they don't want you to have any privacy. Right. Right. And if you think about it, healthy boundaries, in a sense, uh, you know, if we think of it on the societal level or the governmental level, it's the law. Right. That's Mm -hmm. what's supposed to be the boundaries in society. You can't break the law. You can't break that boundary that's been placed there for a specific reason. Uh, But the powers that be themselves, they break the law all the time without consequence. Right. Right. And so the boundaries are just for the people beneath them. Interesting. Well, it's all inherently ties back to insecurity. I mean, it's exactly the same point with either situation. The government is very aware that we all see what they're doing. And so what they're doing is not trying to keep us safe from ourselves. They're prying into our internal conversations to make sure that they know what's going on. Same thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. like what you're saying with your family, it's not about like making sure you're not doing something wrong. At least in my opinion, it sounds more like they're worried about what you might be doing they don't want or that you might find something they don't want you to see or that's what it would sound like more to me it's more inherent in security you know just the government you know, I don't, I don't, very clear. Go ahead. yeah well in my case i don't think if it was insecurity i think it was about establishing control control yeah and dominance but and wanting to be wanting me to be afraid of them 
Um, your personal situations, obviously, you you know more than anybody. I mean, like in a general sense, though, do, don't couldn't you argue that control is kind of overlap with the same way that people need that control as sociopaths and narcissists because they're insecure about what you may do when you're not doing exactly what they want? Like, that's how I would see that. Yeah, maybe maybe to an extent. But I think at the same time, you know, like I was reading on um, about what, well, you know, because of my experiences, I spent a, a, a lot of time reading about how other people's experience of narcissism and there was this one story of this dad that was the the narcissist in this case and he had three daughters and he gave his three daughters necklaces and he said when they were little like four five and six and said you have to wear these necklaces all the time you can't take them off because i'll know if you take them off and i'll see everything you're doing You know, basically being like they're wearing surveillance technology and they were terrified to have them on and terrified to take them off and obviously they were just like little glass bead necklaces or something. God, it's just and that has nothing, that's about control. That's yeah. about making them terrified of you. Yeah. And doing whatever they say, because you're, it's using fear to control people. And, the, and you know, narcissists do a lot of that too. Um, and one of the reasons, you know, that I have not, like I, I told you before we started recording, you know, one of the reasons I've never really opened up about my experiences before is because I've been too scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though, you know, I've, you know, don't have contact really, uh, with my parents, uh, you know, I'm scared. Oh, this, you know, I, I publicly talked about it. It might get back to them and they'll say something to me. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. it really won't really affect my life very much at all, especially at this point. And, you know, especially now, because like my sister and my dad all know the situation, you know, they might have denied it when I was younger, but they they all we all agree now, you know, but I'm still scared yeah, to yeah. say what happened to me. And the same thing, too, with with my ex, um, you know, I we broke up several months ago. I was scared to say anything. And it wasn't until, you know, my son was in the hospital. He was treating me like crap. He didn't even ask uh, what he could do to help his son. And then he was. um you know, trying to ruin relationships with people that I work really closely with uh, behind my back, including people that contribute to my site and I regularly co-author articles with. Um, And not just them, I mean, a bunch of other people, you know, why I've uh, been going through this awful experience with our child. Hmm. Uh, And at the same time, this person was also trying to publicly um, farm sympathy and publicly fundraise uh, off of my son's condition, even though he has never and will never send money. Hmm. So, you know, I got, um, I stopped being afraid at that point because I, you know, I don't want to have the cower in, in fear of people forever. You know, I was controlled by fear for a long time and I don't, um, you know, not fear of the government, right? Like I don't have a problem yeah. on that level, <clears throat> but in my personal life, I, you know, why I had all this time to just sit there and think about my life and my kids and, you know, who I am, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I put my daughter through hell while I was in a relationship with this person. That was wrong of me. I should have been stronger and not been controlled by fear, but I was, you know, it's really sad. Uh, it'll always be sad for me, you know, yeah. but I, I can't, continue to do that i have to stand up to the bully at some point and i think all of us have to um whether it's the government or someone i mean people don't deserve to be treated that way and i grew up feeling like i deserve to be treated that way right and you know for me to 
move on. I have, I, I just felt like I had to publicly talk about it because I didn't know any other way to break that fear, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's obviously, it's a very brave thing to do in general, just for, you know, but I think what, you know, what's important is if in, you tell me if, you know, you, we don't have to talk about this depending on how much you want to get into it, but the, the action of making this step, you know, this is the healing part we're talking about, you know, like the fact that you, like you said, like you, you, you're no longer scared. So for those listening, you know, what do you think was the turning point for you? What was it? I mean, obviously you have this, this very pow- this profoundly changing moment where you're suffering with your son and, you know, you've, you've decided to reflect on that. Is that what you think kind of put this over the edge or was there something you kind of did that made you realize that you need to be different? Well, you know, it, it, there was a lot of stuff that happened over the course of relationship that was, you know, pushed me over the edge a few times, <clears throat> I guess uh, you could say, because, you know, I, I broke up with this person or tried to uh, multiple times. Uh, but, you know, the only reason I said something publicly, you know, I really don't like, like I said earlier, I don't like talking about my personal life at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it has to get to a really bad point for that to happen. And, you know, um, when your son's been on a ventilator for five days and you don't know if they're going to come home and then you have, um, their dad, instead of saying, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? Uh, you know, bullying you, demanding stuff from you and then threatening you. Um, it's just, it was just too much. And, and then trying to trash your reputation behind your back. It's. I just, I couldn't, you know, I didn't want to have to take that lying down anymore. I mean, it's just dehumanizing. And, you know, that whole relationship left me feeling completely dehumanized. Anyway, and I was, uh, you know, before my son ended up in the hospital, I felt like I was really coming out of that. And then to have to go through all that again, no, I just, no way. And I mean, I mean, there's, you know, a lot of awful stuff that happened before then too, you know, and I don't really need to... Uh, spew all the details or anything, but it, um, you know, at, at a certain point, people have to have red lines, whether it's in their personal life or, you know, with the powers that be, you know, healthy boundaries are important. And, you know, for me, it's been hard because, you know, as a kid, I wasn't able to uh, have boundaries. So like being able to establish them for me is like a lifelong struggle yeah. or has been, you know, I'm like uh, 33, so I'm not that old, I guess, but, um, it's definitely taken a long time uh, for me to tell people I don't like being treated that way. Like normally I just take it, you know? Uh, and you know, that's something I have to learn. I mean, we all have stuff that, you know, we've had to deal with because of, you know, how we grew up and, you know, I, everyone's case is different, obviously. Um, but um, I don't know. I mean, it's been, it's definitely been, um that's been a particular challenge in, in my case. And, um, you know, having low self-esteem sucks, (laughs) uh, you know, especially when you're like working in an environment like alternative media where, um, so many people, uh, are not like that and have really high health esteem. um, And, you know, some of them are probably, you know, on the narcissistic spectrum a bit too, and obsessed Mm -hmm. with, you know, influencer status where I feel like, you know, those tendencies we were talking about earlier on social media, I feel like for people that do have those tendencies, once they have a massive following and, you know, a bunch of followers that has to go into overdrive for some people. Yeah. Well, and the reverse too. Go ahead. ahead. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in, my particular case, you know, I, I was told 
when I broke up with this person that, you know, I couldn't break up with them. They told me because this was their chance to make it in independent media by being associated with me. I mean, they essentially told me that they'd been using me the whole time. And like, I don't care about (laughs) this stuff at all. Like, I will be very happy when uh, this whole ID driver's license for the internet stuff rolls out because I can go like play with my kids and garden and do stuff that I actually like, you know? Right. And not have to report on like insane clown world dystopia every day and and be stuck on a screen uh, constantly. You know, but I mean, there's people that are willing to, you know, trap someone in a relationship by impregnating them and all this stuff just to get that stuff. I mean, it's mental and like makes me also really think, you know, about alternative media. I mean, after that experience and in a different way, you know, because I always wanted to think that, oh, well, people that see stuff as anti-system and anti-establishment are, um, you know, they're not going to be like those guys. <laughs> right? right. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, I think so. I mean, even if a lot of people in alternative media, maybe they didn't start off that way. I think that same model that we were talking about earlier, exactly over time has led some people, more people than before in alternative media and independent media to really be all about the followers and the clicks and the money, the revenue model. It's, it's definitely gotten pretty far away from, from the truth telling and the integrity and being better than MSM. I think a lot of, you know, influencers, quote unquote, and alternative media have essentially become MSM spouting a different variety of talking points at the end of the day. And it's really disappointing. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I I I, 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 good well i think also like <clears throat> what there needs to be more of an alternative media if we're going to differentiate ourselves from mainstream media is be authentic mm-hmm. you know and right. i think there's not enough authenticity i think there was earlier on mm-hmm. you know if you think back many years ago to when it was sort of just starting and i think people you know with time can tell at least you know people that are more critically thinking can sort of sniff out who's authentic and who's not pretty easily over time, you know, because people will tell you who they are eventually, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, but I think, you know, even in the political sphere, for example, so I don't want to dunk on, on Robert F. Kennedy. I mean, I think some people can imagine that I don't, um, like his Israel position. Right. Yeah. I've spoken (laughs) Um, out too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but you know, I've met him and he's always been really nice to me. When my son was in the hospital, he sent me an email saying he was praying. I mean, and that was really nice. He didn't have to do that. You know, you know, I don't think he's a bad guy, but I think, you know, whoever told him to run for office or it was his idea, um, he was given bad advice. And I think this happens to a lot of people that run for office with good intentions. Mm-hmm. Um, they pander. I mean, someone asked me at the Bitcoin conference how I felt about Robert F. Kennedy. And I was like, you know, when you really love a video game and then it's really successful and then the company comes, almost always electronic arts, and then they they come and they try and dumb it down so that more people buy the next game and then they ruin it yeah. by trying to like make it appeal to more people. That's what happens when someone you uh, you like or want to like runs for office. Right. <laughs> I agree. At least, yeah, that's how I feel about it. And so, you know, I think if Robert F. Kennedy or someone like him 
had gone into this being like, you know what, I'm going to keep authentic views and I'm not going to pander to powerful groups and lobbies. They're just going to be authentic and say what they really think. And even if some people don't like it, people like the authenticity because everyone in political office is inauthentic pretty much, you know? Exactly. And that yeah. is people want something real because everything's freaking fake, you exactly. know? Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. I, I was just going to say on a couple things in general, you know, you point out the the social media aspect of it is that on the other side of that, the, the other way around is that you're also being overwhelmed with negativity all the time from people, you know, we, anybody in this field, you know, well, that you, you, you do a show and you get half the comments or people are just very, just vitriol, just negative, angry, mean things. And that builds up too, you know, and that has an effect. And my, the way I thought about that is, you know, to your point about social uh, independent media and, and how a lot of them have kind of con gone down that same path. I think some of that's intentional people that just really don't care. And it's about money, but a lot of them, might, it might be inadvertent, you know, where, because they're in this cycle, we've talked about in the beginning, the, what social media does to you, that you just find yourself in this position. And now like, like you've been speaking about, about Twitter, you know, that now you've got this model it's 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 like this quiet killer where people don't even realize it's building and suddenly they're mixed up in this th their entire industry if they built is hinging on twitter ad, re ad revenue you know and it's like it's you can see how that yeah. tracks people you know it's it's very well sad. the ad revenue yeah the ad revenue sharing thing has taken it to a next level because they've monetized engagement and so you had like you and i both um talk, commented on some guy that had viral tweets about maui for tweeting something that was totally fake and saying it was Maui. And uh, we both got blocked, <laughs> right. right? But that guy got a ton of engagement and he he he's part of that program, right? So he's made a bunch of money just saying whatever. And so people can say now, uh, post any sort of thing that they think is gonna get a reaction, whether negative or positive, most likely negative, mm -hmm. right? And right. make money off of it. Well, I would say, though, that I think, obviously, in free speech in mind, even though that's not what Twitter's doing, that they should be allowed to say that, which I'm sure you agree with. But what I see happening, which is interesting, is they're censoring things that are true, which is actually happening, and then almost raising up the stuff that's false. And what I think is truly happening yeah. is they're creating what they've always said the independent media is, and it hasn't always been. Like, where they're all just in this for the money, where the money's barely ever been there for anybody in this field, whereas suddenly they're, like, creating this lucrative right, totally. rush for fake news, like actual fake information. And then they could point at it. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Because, I mean, if you see, you know, Musk and new Twitter as being part of this technocratic system eventually, and that's the ambition that Musk has for it, right? Mm -hmm. and they have to um, find a way to sort of, you know, essentially destroy independent media. And so part of that is going to be an attack on the credibility of people that aren't mainstream media or approved mm -hmm. media. And people like that obviously play into it. It's, it's an old tactic of, um, uh, poisoning the well, right? Mm -hmm. So right. like the well can be full of clean water, but you put like a drop or two of poison and you ruin the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And they can point to that and be like that. Well, all the water's gross. Don't use it. So, yeah. <clears throat> and, you know, it's essentially the same goal at the end of the day, I think. Um, but, you know, it's not just uh, that, too. Um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of people and, you know, this is true of narcissists. Also, there's like an addiction, in my experience anyway, uh, to drama and conflict. They, if it's not there, they have to create it because they need that fighting. They, they get something out of it. 
mm-hmm. you know, the constant back and forth and the, and, and whatever. And for some people that, you know, it's online, like arguing online. Right. And not necessarily everyone that argues online is a narcissist. I'm not saying that. But I think the same sort of addictive stuff that happens in a person's brain when they get likes and followers and lots of shares, some people get addicted to arguing constantly. And online gives them, you know, that the means to do that. And then you can monetize it on top of it and then have it everywhere in everyone's face, viral, promoted, and all of a sudden, Twitter is just full of this toxic stuff. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know, it's an interesting thing that we don't get, like, I, I, I don't know enough about the site, like the actual physiology, if that's the right word, like the chemical makeup of what happens in this process in people's minds. But one thing I've read about in the past is, you know, that people like, for instance, taking the, the argument, argumentation on, on Twitter and the back and what that does for you. And in most cases for people, when you get into an argument or a fight, it's cortisol, right? You're fight or flight, you're, you're, you're fighting, you know? But what happens for people that are doing this, you begin mm-hmm. to change the way your, your brain works to where you're producing a different, you get a pl- like a pleasure response from making people angry. And that it just, it rewires your brain. Oh. And that's terrifying. I mean, I think that's part of what's happening. Yeah, that's very possible. I didn't know that. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. You can get pleasure from making someone angry. Well, we know that exists. You Ugh. know, there are people just like, <laughs> like people that are, uh, yeah, like yeah. you know, they really hurt themselves during sex. And, you know, so there's an overlap there for some people. But I don't think it's intentional for some of these people, you know, where you're you're. Yeah, arguing. just crazy to me. Yeah, good. No, I just said it's it's crazy to me. And, and mainly because you know, like because of how I grew up and there was this constant generation of drama in the household like i hate conflict mm-hmm. i hate it when people get angry <laughs> i'm like let's not it. fight let's um how can we defuse this situation let's deal with this later and i mean it's just a nightmare for me when someone's angry i'm like how do i calm them down it's right. like how i react to it not i just can't imagine being like that was awesome i made them mad and it's, it's, it's that feeling that feeling you get when, when I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a feeling you can't shake when you walk away from some negative confrontation, at least for me and you, it sounds like people with emotions <laughs> that you just feel this negativity that you can't get rid of. And people ter- either like that to begin with, or they end up seeking that, you know, and it just becomes something they, they, they stri- like, I, I grew up with people that used to get, you know, they, they actually would love to get in fights growing up in high school. You know, and that's the same thing. You're producing a feeling that you enjoy through that, which it shouldn't be the way that works. It should be the opposite. But, you know, people change that or they're born that way. You know, I think I think there's something in there that has to do with exactly what we're talking about. I'm just not educated enough on on that process to speak on it. But that's interesting to me. Well, there's a whole bunch of different aspects of this that have been like, there's a lot of studies. I mean, I'll see what I can throw in, in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, there's people that have devoted their lives essentially to to studying a lot of these dynamics and mm-hmm. and things like that not ne- not necessarily like how the powers that be do it right but in like interpersonal relationships and well and, there's a guy named like that there's a guy named simon sinek that i've referenced many times in the past he kind of doesn't overlap like that which it's actually more so about why our so-called leaders aren't actually leaders it's a really great it's called why leaders eat last i think is what he the title and he gets into that exact point, the, the you know, cortisol, endorphins, dopamine, serotonin, you know, goes over how each one and how it applies. His whole point, though, is that you mm-hmm. get people that are, you know, they basically act in their own interest. It's the same kind of conversation we're having. And his larger point is that true leaders put themselves last. 
that that's the opposite of what we're dealing with today, right? Where we're dealing with people that are saying, no, I need to eat first because if I don't, I can't lead properly. <laughs> Even if you have to die to do it, like those aren't. Oh, leaders. sure. No, most definitely. Well, I think that's the narcissism thing too, because ultimately they're, uh, you know, the people you're talking about, right? They're the center. They center everything based on their experience and their experience is what matters. And, you know, if you have a conversation with one, they'll frequently talk about themselves for most of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, that extreme focus on them makes it very hard for them to think about others first. And obviously, if it's hard for them to think about others first in minor situations, in oh. dire situations, it's impossible, right? Absolutely. I mean, they almost create a situation both in relationships as well as government where they create like, like as if you become president, you, you then convince yourself that you are the most important person, even if you may be in some cases, like, so that dynamic plays. Well, into well. yes, I think that's probably true. But if you think about the current president, I don't think he even knows what day it is. So I, I agree with that. Let's talk about being a congressperson. Other presidents. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Trump's a pretty good example, but, oh, you know, man. people freak out about the comparisons, sure. but, you know, a person in power in general, you know, you, you convince yourself that you are the most important. And then it's like this self-serving, you know, it's interesting. And that I think in a relationship is more, more of a good point is that you create a situation where you convince yourself that this person couldn't exist without you. And then it's like a self-serving yeah. problem, you know? You brought up Trump and it's, it's crazy for me because you see stuff posted by Trump supporters. It's obviously not all Trump supporters, but there's like a group of them. I guess they're probably sort of in the QAnon group, but they basically talk like Trump's going to come back to office and they're like, it's going to be biblical. And they talk all about how he um, is, was chosen by God or chosen by Jesus, or he's this and that. I mean, it's like all this religious stuff about Trump, how he's basically like the Messiah. And can you imagine a guy that's already like known for having narcissistic tendencies and then he has followers who are like that and treating him like he's God on earth? Oh, man, dude. That's scary. He probably loves being president. Oh, yeah. (laughs) See, it goes back to the point you made earlier is he probably also enjoys the negative attention just as much to some degree, you know? Yeah, it's possible. I want it to surprise me, honestly. Well, yeah, because I mean, this whole thing with the indictments, you're having like all the people that hate Trump being like, yeah, and all the people that love Trump being like, oh, look, he's such a hero because look how persecuted he is. And, yeah. Well, the, either um, way, you're at the center of all of it. That's really he's the point. At the center of all of it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's scary. Well, uh, I, what's scary it, to me is that those people still exist and they really do. You know, that they're like, my prediction will be that Trump, if if he wins, that they're going to say, see, we told you he'd be put back in office. It's like, wait a minute. That's not what you said. <laughs> he said he would be put back in because he, you know, that it's, it's, it's just going to be another narrative where they justify what they predicted would happen, but didn't the way they said it would. QAnon is just a, there's going to, people are going to write books about how crazy that was <laughs> for decades back. Yeah, but I mean, it's still going on. And there's different segments of QAnon, right? Like there's the QAnon people that were like, okay, I'll trust the plan for a while. And then there were the (laughs) QAnon people that traveled to Dealey Plaza in Texas to see John F. Kennedy Jr. come back from the dead and take over the country. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, there's probably not not to force the, the, the overlap, but you could make an argument that that's actually part of what's happening with them too. What we're talking about today. Like, like that they're at the center of this story. Oh, right. No, and nobody else does. And it, you know, part of that's there too, because the evidence isn't there. We all know that they manufacture this reality. So they feel the center of something that could be part of it. 
Yeah, totally. No, that definitely happens for sure. And they they have, in my experience, they have to be the hero and the victim simultaneously of every story they tell. That's They're never crazy. the bad guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's very bizarre. But again, you know, for someone who is trying to cover up in an extreme, wo extremely wounded, inferior feeling self, they have to project something that is totally different from that reality. And so it it seems good to them and makes them feel good. But to people that aren't that, I guess, for lack of a better word, like distorted, Mm -hmm. eventually when it becomes like so disconnected from actual reality, the way they talk about themselves, you know, you can sort of start to tell. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. like they don't, what they're, that whole false self isn't anchored in reality at all. Right. And so it can go to places that other people will notice is not in line with reality. Mm hmm. And they won't necessarily tell that person, but like, they will be, you know, people will notice not everyone, you yeah. know, because, you know, narcissists are also inherently charming and charismatic, yeah. what they project, right? That's how they wrote people in in the first place. And they're very good at convincing you they're great, at least for a while. Yeah. I think it's much easier for them to maintain it online, to be honest, because it's less work than having to maintain it in person. Yes, when you point. have to maintain it in person, I feel like it lasts le much less time. Because yeah. online, you don't have to put that much time and energy to it. So you can perpetuate it for years depending on the frequency you're talking to the people you're trying to convince you're so amazing. Yeah. And you also don't have any like real actual relationship. It's superficial. Like they see you through the screen. Exactly. You don't have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So we've been going almost oh, yeah, a good while now. Uh, anything you uh, want to add that we haven't brought up yet or. No, I just, I, you know, I would just, just in general say that, you know, I, I know that's this, some of the stuff I know is very hard for you to talk about. And I just want to just, you know, commend you on that in general. And I think that what I was asking before is, you know, clearly it's, it's, it's just hard to talk about, but I think that people just by hearing what you're discussing here today, that it's one of the things that stands out to me is not just acknowledging that this exists, but finding a path away from it. Right. So we've, we've talked about this totally. sort of the government, you know, but like, like you said, there's a lot of people that are living in these relationships and maybe haven't even recognized that yet, you know? So hopefully what you're discussing can allow them to see it, you know, and then give them the courage, like you have to, to step away from it and make changes in their life that can hopefully stop that from happening in the future. So I just, you know, I'm, I think it's an important conversation and I know it was hard to talk about. So thank you for setting it up. Well, you know, I have more to share. I'll probably, you know, tack it on uh, to the end of this episode at some point, because, you know, I, I, I would like people to know, you know, why I care so much about, um, you know, what I, what I do and where it came from, but I didn't want that to dominate the conversation because like we've been talking about today, I think there's a much more conversation to be had mm -hmm. about that. And, you know, I feel like doing it this way, you know, people can get something positive out of it. Absolutely. You know? I mean, I think, and, I you know, that's what I'm saying is I think people will listen to this and, you know, it'll give them the courage to try to make these steps for themselves. And I think that's positive no matter how you look at it. Well, you know, in my case, you know, when you, so like gaslighting, when we talked about earlier, you have a hard time. Uh, it becomes hard to know how you experience reality. If that's actually how it is, like you doubt yourself all the time. You're like instilled with this doubt and you're like, and you're like, is it really is me? Did I really experience it that way? And, you know, really right. the only way to get out of that is to uh, take notes of what you experience when it happens and you there refer you back to it. 
that and have like a record. You know, I had to do that. It was immensely helpful. Uh, yeah. But the other thing was that I had to literally immerse myself in stories of other people that had been in relationships like this. Huh. I had to I had to read a load of it uh, from all sorts of different people, all sorts of different. I mean, there's a whole Reddit about this and like all different uh, forums and, and websites where people talk about their experiences. And that was really helpful and like affirming because it's like hard, especially when there's kids involved. It's like a hard thing to end. Yes, yeah, um, we, didn't, we didn't even get into that aspect of it. And just that, that makes it exponentially more difficult. Yeah, well, you know, I don't really need to uh, get too into it, I guess. But it was oh, just... Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to, for now. I just meant to point no, out. No, no. Yeah, go ahead. Well, it's it's all a matter of disentangling yourself. So like when you're talking about going no contact as a solution to like the powers that be or a toxic abuser in your life, mm -hmm. the degrees of entanglement are different for everyone. So there's some people that like live a certain way and they're not very entangled with the, the powers that be. And there's some people that are very entangled, right? And so obviously, depending on your individual case or the relationship you're trying to get out of, there's different degrees of entanglement. Mm -hmm. And so depending on how entangled you are, there's, you know, that, that mean that sort of defines how difficult it is to go no contact, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I guess but, I would just end with saying that, you know, I, I think that the, one of the main kind of morals of all of this, the story is that, you know, it is possible, right? You know, not to make it too of a, you know, grandiose or fluffy or whatever you want to call it. But I, I do think that people can, it's possible, you know, you can make these changes and you can better yourself in a thousand different ways, but in particular, just recognizing this and growing from it, you know, and I think that's, again, that people can hear this and, and give them that first step, you know, that's a really positive thing. Yeah. But the thing about no contact is that people take a time to realize that's the point. And the reason, or th that's what they have to do. And the reason it takes them a while is because they think the person will change. Right. People like this don't change. No matter what you do, you cannot change them. They have to change them. And the same is true for the powers that be in the government. Nothing is going to change the government. You can vote as hard as you want. The system will not change. That's the whole point of this, you know, what's basically become a meme now of the deep state. The deep state is about the shadow government that really controls stuff. And the elected offices are essentially fronts for them at the end of the day. Right. So vote harder. It's not going to change. So you can participate in the political circus that is the election and think that you're going to change the system from within by voting for guy X, Y and Z. But that's not going to happen. It will still be there. It will still be the same. And the only way to free your life of the insanity going, or free yourself from the insanity that they are trying to impose on you is to have nothing to do with them, period. Right. Because it's they're not going to change. So once you realize that the system or the person that you're trying to avoid disentangling yourself from and is making you miserable is never going to change, no contact becomes the only possible way forward ultimately. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the government aspect here is really the overarching point of all of it, you know, that people need to learn from this and stop leaning into things that are affecting their lives in negative ways. Well, you know, like I said earlier, how like I grew up feeling like I deserve to be treated like shit. Right. There's people that will take so much shit from the government and not do anything about it. And if you think about like what 
people are enduring right now and no one's still really doing much about it. it it's kind of, it, it's really the same thing. I think people, not just in the US, but really everywhere are so conditioned and used to being treated like, like, like dirt by the government as like subhuman by the government. People are just used to it and it's been normalized. You're right. And it really shouldn't be. Hmm. That's scary. Think about. Well, I think it, I think it's pretty true, though, right? I mean, it if you look at right now, you know how much money is being sent into essentially a black hole in Ukraine, and people in Maui are getting like seven hundred dollars that lost like homes that are worth like you know millions or less, but you know definitely way more than seven hundred dollars, and that's supposed to be like, I mean, it's ridiculous. It it's is ridiculous. It's it, that's it's, so, me- it's almost meant to be insulting. And there's a you know an infinite list. Of American tragedies, exactly. And there's an infinite list of like American tragedies where it's just the government did nothing or it made the situation worse. And a lot of times for the benefit of people that finance the politicians or the benefit of the government itself, it's been going on for a long time. I think the difference now is that there's a growing awareness of it, but we have to do something with that awareness, you know? Exactly. Because if you're aware you're in an abusive relationship and you do nothing to make it better for you or your kids, you know, what good is the awareness? Right. And the same is true of the government and the quote unquote system, the powers that be. If you're super aware of how this is that system is working to enslave you and your children and you're doing nothing about it and going on like. You can stay entangled to a system that wants to essentially destroy you, to control you. Uh, why are you not trying to end your connection to that? You know? Yeah, exactly. So that's just got to take that first step. Totally. And, you know, it is a step thing. I mean, I think some people hear, you know, people in independent media say, like, build a new system, exit and build. And they just assume, like, oh, I'll do that later and assume it's like not a gradual thing, but you have to take small steps, whether it's an abusive relationship or, you know, trying to get off grid or like off of the system in some way, it, you can't just do it all like bam overnight. Right. You know, these are all things that you have to take step towards and people have to start doing it at some point. So, you know, maybe talking about it in this context of both in, you know, the parallels between how it works in interpersonal relationships and how it works at the bigger level, maybe it can help some people realize that by looking at it in a different way. Because personally, I hadn't really um, noticed those parallels so much before. Um, And I I, I felt like it was helpful to me. It was sort of like an eye opener, uh, you know, for me, when I was like reflecting on a lot of this stuff, um, you know, a few weeks ago. And, you know, hopefully it, it helps somebody else. And if it does, that would be awesome. <laughs> I, I learned plenty today, honestly, just listening to the stories and, and, and stuff that I looked up beforehand. And yeah, so thanks for setting this up. I appreciate it. I think it was powerful. Yeah, well, thanks, Ryan. And, and thanks for joining me. So um, everybody, thanks so much for listening. I really want to uh, give my deepest appreciation to people that support this podcast and unlimited hangout. I know I've not obviously been able to put out much content at all uh, for the past 10 weeks or so uh, because of, you know, the obvious circumstances. Uh, But man, I, I, I just can't describe how grateful I am for that support during a really difficult time because, you know, I don't 
I don't have support from my parents. I don't have support from my kid's father. And, you know, it's really been, um, you know, you guys that have really, you know, kept things going for me. And I just, uh, I can't thank you, thank you guys enough. Um, so, um, hopefully you enjoyed <laughs> uh, this podcast. Uh, I know it's a little different than, you know, things I, I normally do. And, uh, for those that are interested, um, after, you know, uh, I sign off here with Ryan, uh, I'll be uh, sharing a little bit more about, you know, what I mentioned in the intro, you know, giving an honest answer <laughs> to some of those, uh, questions and talking about some of those things, uh, that are hard for me to talk about, uh, but ultimately made me who I am and, uh, you know, why I ended up doing what I do and, uh, why I care about truth and, you know, what's real at the end of the day. So uh, thank you, Ryan. And and thanks everybody for listening. All right. For those of you still listening, uh, this is the part where I guess I get uh, more personal than I've ever gotten since I have, um, you know, developed any sort of online uh, platform of significance. So, you know, I, I wanted to have the focus of the discussion not be about me and my experience. Cause I think there's, you know, as I talked about with Ryan, uh, something much bigger, um, to take away from all of this. But like I said earlier, you know, for me personally, um, I just don't feel like I can, um, you know, continue living in a way where I feel like I am afraid of two people in particular in my personal life. And it's not that, you know, I'm consciously afraid of them all the time, but I've, um, you know, been held back from sharing my experience and, you know, answering questions and interviews when I'm asked about my past and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because I was worried about uh, what they might do. And, you know, the core of that is, you know, uh, still being afraid of them. And as I've said on, you know, numerous interviews, I feel like when you uh, have any sort of fear uh, about somebody, you know, they have power over you. And so, you know, this is um, you know, part of my, um, you know, attempt to, uh, not have that be a factor in my life anymore, uh, to be really open, uh, with people about, you know, some of the, you know, the questions I've been asked in the past about, you know, why I, I do the work I do and why I care about this stuff. Um, and, you know, that I felt like I haven't really been able to answer fully and, you know, on all the, you know, other reasons that I sort of touched on earlier on in the in the podcast. So um, I'm going to try and not have this run too long because this episode I really got, you know, a little on, on the long side, but I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to get um, the pertinent points across. So um, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida. Um, and my dad's a lawyer. Uh, my mom's a homemaker. And um, you know, I had a lot of problems with my mom growing up. Um, you know, uh, I have a sister who's about 14 months, well, exactly, more or less, 14 months younger than me, so about a year apart. Um, and, you know, ever since she was born, you know, see, she had some you know, relatively minor health problems, had to go to a lot of doctor's visits, though, but it wasn't anything, you know, like what uh, my son has had to go through recently. And he, um, and my, um, uh, my mom kind of used that as an excuse to say that, you know, she couldn't handle two kids. So I got, you know, she was overwhelmed by my daughter. Uh, she was overwhelmed by my sister having a lot of doctor's appointments and being sort of sickly at times. Uh, I don't really remember my sister being that sick. Um, 
but you know definitely a few things here and there did happen but um you know for various reasons including that and my mom saying that she was stressed all the time i was basically raised by my grandparents i got sent over there um probably <laughs> at least once a week uh for a couple days until i was uh i don't know probably like 10 or 11 um, and, you know, sometimes like summer vacation, you know, for, for months. And so, you know, I felt like in a lot of ways I was, um, raised just as much by them, if not, um, my own parents. Um, but my mom in general, you know, um, when I was home, uh, made it very clear that, um, uh, she was a pretty withholding, uh, mother, I guess. And, um, you know, wasn't, um, trying to think of the right way to put it not really interested in me made it really clear that I was sort of like the odd man out um you know uh and so that kind of feeling I had from a very young age and you know sometimes it was really nasty like I remember one time in the car when I was seven my mom was telling me that if she knew how I would have turned out she would have made sure to not have had me you know like basically saying she would have terminated the my pre uh, the pregnancy if she'd known how I'd turn out later and stuff like that kind of messed up stuff to say to a seven-year-old but um um it, it got a lot worse for me around the time I was 13 or so um and that basically happened because my mom's brother um who you know my sister and I loved and thought he was a really lovely guy um you know always really fun uh did nice things for us paid a lot of attention to us um, he, my, you know, I was having problems with my mom because I, I started dating a guy that she didn't like. And so she wanted me to break up with him and it was like my first love. So I like, didn't want to. So we were clashing about that, I guess. And somewhere in there, she called uh, her brother and blamed him uh, for all the problems that she and I were having. And she lied about the nature of those problems. So she didn't say that it was because I was dating a guy or anything. Uh, she said it was because I'd gotten into drugs, which was not true at all at the time. And little did I know that my uncle had previously had uh, drug and alcohol issues. And so she uh, blamed him, uh, you know, for all of these things. And I don't know exactly the nature of the conversation because I didn't hear the conversation. Uh, but shortly after it happened, my mom came and bragged about it to me and bragged about how my uncle sobbed on the phone. And... Um, uh, I don't know. It didn't really make sense to me at the time. I mean, I remember being just sort of like uh, flabbergasted about why my mom would make up something like that and why she'd brag about making him upset. But I mean, if you if you know the lady, uh, she does kind of seem to get off sometimes on uh, dragging people down and then kicking them when they're down. Um, and a lot of stuff, you know, I remember from um, after this and, and before this that... Um, you know, she'd complain a lot about how, how growing up she felt like, you know, my grandma, her mother paid more attention to him than to her and that her grandmother had been the same way and that he'd been uh, given all this attention that she'd been denied and expressed a lot of anger and, and you know, jealousy about him. So I'm sure she probably picked on him all, all the time. Uh, but anyway, this was the first time I'd ever heard about it. And I thought it was weird. And I didn't get why she would insert this you know, thing about drugs that didn't happen. And I was like, how does that even relate to uncle, my uncle, because I didn't know about any of this um, stuff in his past at the time either. Um, but I found out about it, um, you know, the next day and the day after, because 
um, after that. My mom had made that phone call to him. Uh, that you know, the next day um, he was uh, found dead. Um, had apparently killed himself. And um, you know, my mom knew that I uh, uh, knew about the phone call. And obviously, the only other person besides me that knew about it uh, was gone. So um, you know, my mom. Uh, pretty clearly to me was, um, you know, I, terrified, I guess, that I would tell someone uh, that, you know, and they might believe me. And so, um, you know, my mom basically started this big smear campaign about me uh, within the family um, at the church my family went to um, among the parents of kids uh, that attended my school. And you know, all of this uh, stuff saying that I uh, I was crazy, I was a liar, I had all these behavioral problems. I mean, just making up a whole bunch of, um, making up a whole bunch of stuff that, that wasn't true. And, you know, I, I, I did kind of try and, you know, after a year of that, uh, did act out because it was really um, unfair. And, uh, you know, my mom did a lot of other things to try and isolate me. You know, she grounded me all the time. She wouldn't let me uh, have friends outside of school, like I couldn't go over to anyone's house ever, and a lot of. But she'd let my, you know, my sister go out and do stuff, and my dad was working all the time, so a lot of times I was alone um, uh, with her at the house, and she just did really crazy stuff, stuff that was really uh, psychologically disturbing. She didn't let me have any privacy. I mean, she even took the locks off of the the bathroom door that I used so that she could like scream at me when I was using the bathroom and like all of this stuff that just, I mean, it seems so crazy in retrospect, but at the time, I mean, it was obviously, it was obviously awful. And, um, you know, um, she basically made it her, or her mission to make me terrified of her, um, you know, which she kind of did succeed in doing for a time. Um, but, um, you know, I wasn't going to tell anybody anyway, just because I was really close to, with my grandparents, her parents, my uncle's parents, who, uh, because I, I'd just seen how devastated they were after my uncle died, and I didn't want to cause them any more suffering. And I did try and tell some people, I tried to tell my dad at one point, um, he doesn't remember uh, that happening, but, you know, now he believes me after I told him, you know, more recently, because, you know, everyone knows how, how my mom is at this point. And, um, uh, I told another person in the family that later on became sort of like a caretaker to my, my grandparents. And, you know, she basically swore me to secrecy and said not to tell them, not to tell anybody until after my, my grandparents, uh, passed away that they wouldn't be able to handle it. And so, you know, uh, my mom obviously didn't know about that, so she was, you know, trying to pursue her own tactics to make sure I didn't uh, talk. And, um, you know, my sister didn't know. Um, I've offered to tell her, but she's basically told me she doesn't doesn't want to know. Um, but, um, you know, I've pretty much been carrying um, a really unpleasant secret for a really long time. Uh, my grandparents died on... Um, I guess back in, I think it was 2018. So it's, it's been a few years and, you know, I've still sort of been um, keeping the secret, I guess, but not intentionally just because, you know, 
I don't I don't like talking about it. Um, it was a really awful experience. Uh, my mom was essentially um, trying to ruin my life, <laughs> um, trying to get me to kill myself like my uncle killed himself, you know, would goad me on about that stuff and how I shouldn't be here. And, um, you know, I and everything about me was awful. And, you know, just a lot of just a lot of really painful memories that I don't really like to um, look back on and, and discuss. And so, um, you know, one of the reasons that I care so much about the work that I do is that, um, you know, for, for several years, I felt like it, nobody believed me um, about what was going on with my mom. I had one lady uh, that did. Um, I started from all the stress of everything going on at home. Uh, I started having like uh, neurological problems, like some form of epilepsy, but it was completely stress related. Um, and so I got sent to a neurologist who then referred me to some specialist lady that was like a neurologist, psychologist, you know, uh, had both of those specialties. And, you know, that that lady knew what was going on. And um, she probably saved my life, to be honest, uh, because my mom uh, wasn't going to let me uh, leave the house. I tried to leave uh, as soon as I turned 18 and it, you know, uh, was complicated. So, you know, I, I couldn't. And then I tried, I found one place I could stay, but it ended up only being for a week. And, you know, it was... It was a complicated time, but anyway, this lady wrote a letter uh, to the college I got accepted to, uh, and uh, they let me apply for college and uh, financial aid as an independent, so I was able to, uh, you know, still go to college and not have to worry about <laughs> uh, having to stay stuck at my parents' house indefinitely until my mom approved me going to college if I acquiesced to, you know, various demands that I, I wasn't... Um, interested in in meeting so um you know sorry i got off on a tangent there but basically the reason i i care a lot about what i do is because i got uh smeared all the time i only had one adult believe me and i didn't meet that person until i um was like 18 and my uncle died when i was 13 so i had several years of uh being the only person that really uh, knew the truth, right? And, um, you know, uh, being surrounded by lies. And, you know, obviously when you're in a situation like that, it makes you care about, uh, the truth an awful lot. And it makes you realize that it's, um, it's really important, even if you're the only person that knows that it's the truth, you know, I mean, it can be lonely sometimes, you know, whether it's, you know, something personal, like what I'm talking about, or, you know, uh, being too early <laughs> in realizing that certain quote unquote conspiracy theories are true. Um, you know, I think because of a lot of, a lot of my experiences growing up, you know, I really didn't trust authority, um, at all. And, uh, so I guess maybe it was easier for me to see, uh, than most people that the government <laughs> lies all the time and, um, you know, to not necessarily believe people in power because, you know, if it's to their benefit or they have something to cover up, uh, they'll lie, even if they're the people that are supposed to care about, you know, about you more than anyone else in the world. Right. So, um, 
you know, but, you know, realizing that stuff uh, pretty young, you know, for me, I was in college about 21 or 20 years old, and I'm 33 now, um, that it was really lonely then, uh, now definitely uh, less so, right? And the same thing for my personal life, you know, everyone in my family knows that what my mom is capable of now, because once I left home, it got directed at other people, and now she's more or less run out of people to uh, to target at this point. So, um, uh, you know, it can be, it can be really lonely to, um, fight for the truth. And, um, you know, I guess even though it was really hard and, and lonely, um, as a, as a teenager, you know, I, I am proud that I never gave in to that and always tried to tell people what had really happened that I wasn't, um, that I wasn't lying about all this stuff and that I wasn't crazy and all of these things. Um, but it, you know, it's not exactly what I want to talk about in interviews when I get get asked about it. So, you know, (laughs) I guess from now on, I'll probably just refer people to this podcast. So I don't have to keep, have to keep talking about it. Um, anyway, um, so I ended up going to college and, you know, I pretty much broke off ties with uh, my family. I'd still take calls from my, my grandparents who I cared about a lot, but um, they always tried to get me, you know, back talking to my mom, trying to convince me, you know, she wasn't the way I knew she was. And I was trying to protect them from knowing how she was. Right. So, you know, uh, it was hard to really have much contact with my family for a long time. And I really didn't have any contact with them at all until I was, um, I don't know about the time my daughter was born, which was, you know, the end of 2017. Um, so anyway, I, I went to college. I didn't have a great social experience, uh, there either because I was really, after growing up around my mom, really tired of some, this superficial fake stuff, because, you know, her, you know, false self, like, you know, this podcast has been talking about was projecting sort of this superficial social, I mean, a lot of people around could tell it was fake. And I heard people um, comment on that on, on occasion, but, you know, it was this kind of like larger than life social personality and partying and all of this stuff. And, I was really turned off uh, from that in college. And the college I went to was full of mostly rich kids. And I was probably the only one there that was on like 100% um, financial aid and didn't really have money to spend on, you know, whatever. Um, So, you know, uh, it was definitely kind of a a black sheep there for sure. I mean, I did get, you know, did take a lot of great courses and I learned a lot on the academic side of it had to do a ton of writing, which obviously has helped me now. <laughs> and it's probably why I can, uh, you know, write relatively complex p- pieces pretty quickly, because I had to do a lot of that in college. Uh, the school I went to was really writing intensive, I guess. Um, but anyway, you know, I just got really fed up uh, with how things had played out for me. And I, I sort of blamed a lot of it on you know, stuff I noticed culturally about the U.S. I just assumed because of all the people I'd been around really my whole life that pretty much everyone in the U.S. was, you know, superficial like that and cared about all this fake stuff and nothing was really real. There was no, there was nothing like authentic is how I felt a lot of the time. And, you know, around the same time, I also started getting um, really sick. Um, 
and I went to, I tried to go to a couple doctors and they were like, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And I like knew something was wrong with me. So, um, you know, I got to a point where I was so miserable. I was like, well, I can either stay here and be miserable and probably, um, you know, stop at wanting to live for real and do the thing I promised myself I would never do. Um, you know, which, cause I felt like it was like letting my, my mom win. Um, or I, you know, I go somewhere else and live a totally new life. And so that's when I decided to move to, um, move to South America. Uh, I sold the little stuff that I had and I, you know, uh, just pretty much left everything behind. And I went to live in and work in Peru. Um, I worked on a farm in the middle of nowhere, uh, but the closest major city in Peru was uh, Cusco, where Machu Picchu is, for those that don't know much about Peru. And, um, you know, I worked there for a while. It helped a lot with the the issue I was having, which was mainly digestive related. But I, you know, it took me a couple of years to figure out exactly what was going on. But, um, you know, I had, there was no electricity where I was working. You know, there was a generator, but it was turned on once a week. And, you know, it was a lot of hard uh, manual labor and stuff, but, you know, I feel like it was pretty good for me, but eventually I ended up butting heads with the lady that ran it, even though we got on, cut along a lot, but, you know, she'd been isolated for, like, many years up there on this mountaintop and was kind of ornery <laughs> and, uh, developed a drinking problem, and it was just really hard to, to stay there, and so, you know, I ended up leaving and going to Cusco, because I didn't have any money, really, to go back to the U.S. I mean, Peruvian, currency and doesn't isn't worth as much at least it wasn't then as the as the dollar so I definitely couldn't afford to go back to the states um so I, I worked in Cusco in food service for um a couple years and you know I made some friends and life was all right uh until uh this one week when you know everyone was busy and I didn't know what else to do so I went for a walk on this uh this park that wasn't probably like you know five minutes from my house, uh, uphill. And, um, you know, I'd been there before and stuff, but, you know, this time, uh, I shouldn't have gone there alone. And I was, um, uh, sexually assaulted by a Peruvian guy. And, uh, it was probably the only time in my life where I really felt like I was going to die. But, um, you know, thankfully I didn't. And, um, you know, made it out alive, but obviously traumatized from the experience. And I um, decided, um, I, you know, it. I was still going to be stubborn and try and stay in Cusco. But then the guy that did it um, found out where I lived and was like walking in the area where I lived. And um, that was really unsettling to me. And so my best friend at the time at the restaurant I worked at was a Chilean guy. And he said, you know, Chile's not like this. Why don't you come try and give Chile a chance? And, um, you know, I did. He introduced me to who, um, one of his friends from college that also had done, you know, farm management stuff in the past. And, you know, he connected us and said, maybe he can help you find something to do. And, you know, that's how I ended up in Chile. So once I got to Chile, Things were rough for the first two years for me economically, even though Chile was definitely a much better, safer place to live than Peru. And once I started writing, I was able to at least make enough income to live off of. 
Um, I started writing as a profession about two years after I got here. So that's around like the last half of 2016. And roughly a year later, my daughter was born. And um, during my pregnancy, her dad got involved with this uh, new agey religion that I wasn't interested in being a part of. And things for us got progressively more complicated and also progressively more unequal to the point where I was pulling way too much weight in terms of my domestic workload. You know, I was doing pretty much 100% of childcare. I was also uh, the breadwinner, and there was a lot of inequality in our relationship and really uh, no way to communicate about uh, these things effectively. And on top of that, these, you know, spiritual differences made it really hard to continue in that relationship. And so I ended it around the time my daughter turned two. And a few months later, you know, the whole world turned upside down with COVID and I lost childcare pretty abruptly. And not long after that, uh, the really intense lockdowns in Chile started, which honestly were a lot more extreme than the lockdowns implemented in most parts of the West. And I've talked about this on, you know, past interviews and in a previous podcast. Um, So um, I was already before all of this feeling kind of overwhelmed, uh, with work and, you know, with COVID uh, happening, work was even crazier for me because, you know, there was so much uh, going on and it seemed like I had to research so much and urgently because so much enormous stuff was happening globally every day and everyone was trying to scramble to figure out like what's going on, what's going to happen next, you know, and so on. And then on, you know, on top of that, I had to juggle, you know, trying to write and produce all this, this stuff with zero childcare. Um, and, you know, <laughs> trying to write while a spunky two-year-old uh, is in the house with me. And, you know, we can't go anywhere because everything's locked down. So after about six months of this, um, I started talking to the guy who was alluded to earlier in this podcast, who is my son's father. So after asking me a lot of questions about who, you know, myself and about my life, he framed himself as being the perfect complement to everything I lacked at the time and really is the polar opposite of my daughter's father, you know, promising he would never be like him, uh, talking about how great he was with kids, how he would offer exactly uh, the relief that honestly at that point in time I was really desperate for. And I think in retrospect, if I hadn't been so worn down and desperate and isolated, I would have thought a lot more about the situation uh, before inviting him down to visit us in in Chile, or I'm, you know, may not have even done it at all. Uh, But I was, and in this period, you know, I confided a lot in him. I told him a lot about my past, my parents, how all that had affected me, things that had happened, you know, after I I left home, and he acted like he was really empathetic, really cared, um, that he thought I was so wonderful, and that we shared the strong connection and there was this, you know, element of, of destiny to the whole thing. And so he came down at the end of um, 2020 and, you know, for the time he was here, it was really nice for both me and my daughter. Cause you know, we finally weren't alone. Um, and, uh, but during this time too, you know, he would talk constantly about how I had to get away from Chile. I needed to, to escape. Things were only going to get worse and worse. The people were awful Uh, Everything about it was awful and, you know, made me feel really afraid to stay over time. And he, you know, also told me that his country, the United Kingdom, you know, that things weren't as bad as they were in Chile, that my daughter could go to daycare over there. Uh, Things were still open. Life would be better. 
And, uh, you know, when I agreed to go with him to check it out, he told me things like, oh, I feel like I'm saving you, you know, since he'd essentially made it clear that he felt that, like, if I stayed in Chile, it was essentially a death sentence for me and, and my daughter. And, you know, the exact day I left my home and was due to fly out of Santiago, uh, which is Chile's capital, and about nine hours north by car from where I'd been living, um, that's when everything started to change. And of course, it's right when um, I'd basically given up a lot of my independence in my life, um, you know, for him. And, you know, that night we were staying in an airport hotel and I, I'd said something. I can't really remember exactly the words, but I know I was basically angling for some sort of show of emotional support from him uh, because I was I was feeling, you know, jittery and insecure about having left uh, everything behind for, you know, an indefinite period to go somewhere new, uh, you know, with my kid in tow. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was, I basically just wanted a, a hug, you know, and, uh, whatever I said, you know, it elicited the complete opposite type of response I had been hoping for. And instead I, I got just this explosion of, of aggression, verbal abuse, just telling me what a garbage person I was and just telling me, you know, essentially, it was all directed at me about how I'm awful, you know, and I tried to de-escalate it. I was really taken aback that what I had said had, you know, provoked this response. And there was just no way uh, to convince him to stop. Um, you know, I was like trying to do anything to get, you know, saying like, let's calm down. You can, we can talk about what's upset you when we're both more calm and like, let's not do it this way, we're traveling and all this stuff, and n none of it worked. Um, and, you know, it, you know, I got really upset, obviously, because it went on for, like, a really long time, and it was at a time where I felt really vulnerable, too, and, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't even talk afterwards. I was, I was so upset, and then afterwards, you know, he gave me, you know, a hug, but he didn't apologize, and then started blaming my stress uh, for his outburst. And, you know, I tried to rationalize this, rationalize this and some similar outbursts and, you know, weird behavior that happened during the rest of the trip to the UK as him just being stressed by traveling, or maybe he felt a lot of pressure about being responsible for, you know, us now because he'd been a bachelor for so long or something, you know, but, you know, uh, over time it became pretty clear that that wasn't the case. So, you know, once we got in the UK, you know, it was true that I could take my daughter to a daycare, but pretty much everything else was closed. And he, where he uh, was living was not as accommodating for us as he had described. And it was also, you know, pretty much impossible to rent anything else anywhere because he didn't really have uh, an income or like papers to show to justify renting. And I'm been living in Chile for a long time, so I don't have that either. And, you know, like, even though the lockdowns in the UK, I don't, you know, they weren't as bad as Chile's. The situation there was still really um, unpleasant and I wasn't really sure I wanted to stay long term. And, um, you know, which is what he had hoped for. And it was pretty clear that he was really bothered and stressed by the fact that I, I didn't really seem to like it in the UK more. And, you know, during this this time when we first got there, I also learned that my Chilean bank accounts didn't work in the UK. Uh, so I started having to send my money to his bank account, which he would then use to pay for things over there. And that was the start of a 
very unfortunate slippery slope that eventually led me to not having control over my money. Um, you know, what it was spent on. Um, and with time, you know, I couldn't buy anything without him knowing about it. And uh, a couple of weeks after we arrived, um, I got pregnant. And from, you know, that point on, things started to go uh, dramatically downhill. And uh, some months later, you know, he said something about if I hadn't gotten pregnant uh, with my son, he was afraid that I would have just gone back to Chile. And so, you know, um, there's a part of me that thinks maybe he wanted me to have a baby to keep me in the UK because, I mean, he knew in, in detail how hard it had been for me, you know, back in Chile to, to juggle one kid on my own as a single mom. And, you know, I guess he might have known that I would have been much less likely to leave if if it meant having two. But, you know, I I don't really know for sure. But, you know. Uh, definitely something I've, I've thought about. So, uh, my, my second pregnancy was, uh, really, really difficult compared to my first, especially for the first couple of months. It was a lot of puking. I felt sick all the time. I had really low energy and brain fog. Um, but I had to try and keep working. Uh, and a big part of that was because the UK uh, is just so much more expensive than Chile that I really couldn't afford not to work. And, you know, he had no income. He was contributed, tr contributing very occasionally um, to my site. And so, you know, it's my income anyway. So, you know, I was paying for all of our shared expenses. And honestly, who knows uh, what else? Because I didn't have access to his bank statements. And, you know, he treated any attempt on my part to look at those statements as uh, me not trusting him enough and became a big argument that, you know, being super sick and from pregnancy and all that I didn't really want to want to have. Um, and, you know, it was during this time that this there was a pattern of, of abuse that started to emerge. Um, he would say that I was emotionally disconnected from him and he would get really angry and be really aggressive and, and nasty. And he wouldn't let me deescalate the situation or let me have any boundaries. Um, and he would keep going and pushing and pushing and pushing until I would break down, at which point he'd give me a hug, act like he was empathetic again, and then tell me that, oh, how good it was that I was now showing an emotional response and that I was connecting again. And so, you know, in reality, I wasn't disconnected. I was just feeling really ill from pregnancy, uh, poorly supported by my partner, because I was also doing all the domestic stuff still, like cleaning and laundry and all that stuff, you know, doing that solo. And I was also without a support network outside of him because I had, you know, just arrived to a foreign country where he was the only person I knew. So, um, you know, but what he was doing here was trying to push me to react so that when I'd cry and break down, he'd not only reward me with the affection I wanted and which he would normally withhold, um, but he would also tell me that, you know, me crying after he would explode like this was a sign that I had uh, severe depression and that I was mentally ill and I needed to lean more on him and listen to him more and do things the way he wanted. And, you know, he tried to give me the impression that only he knew how to help me. And, you know, uh, I was already totally isolated by being over there. So, um, you know, I didn't really have anyone else to help me anyway. And, um, it was 
uh, clear to me pretty quickly that the things that would set him off or anger him just made no sense most of the time. And it, it left me walking on eggshells really quickly. So um, one of the biggest early explosions came after a night where I had uh, tried to turn on a white noise uh, to block out his really loud snoring. He had a cold at the time. And, uh, you know, I'd known people in college and, you know, in high school even that had used like white noise machines to sleep better or block out noise like in their houses or in, in, in dorms. And I thought it was like a normal thing. But after like two minutes, he woke up, he was really angry and started accusing me of trying to hurt him and trying to torture him. And he went on like this, not just that night, but like for, for several days. And he even went uh, so far as to accuse me of trying to use CIA MK Ultra torture tactics and denied um, the fact that I could have not known uh, how much this would upset him and how awful it was to turn white noise on to block out his snoring. And I, you know, I, I don't know, a lot of these freakouts, you know, they happened in front of my, in front of my three-year-old daughter, including one time he over this white noise thing, he threatened to kill himself. He said I was trying to kill him. And like all these horrible, nasty things you would never say in front of a child, especially one that young. And, you know, after this, there would be, you know, it, there would be these explosions like that. And then there'd be lulls, you know, but the whole experience on top of being ill, pregnant, and no longer in control of my own finances uh, left me feeling trapped. And, uh, you know, I, I felt that way pretty quickly. And that was really hard because I'd had that same sensation living at my parents' house as a, as a teen with my mom, except that this time my daughter was trapped with me too. And, um, you know, by this point, pretty much all of the positive aspects of the relationship that had been there at the beginning uh, had, had disappeared. And, you know, even in conversations, uh, in conversations, uh, he would constantly just talk about himself, what he was researching, what he wanted to do, what he needed. And, you know, anytime I tried to contribute to the conversation, uh, he'd just look at me like with disdain, like I was irritating, like I was meddling in his conversation or I was saying something stupid. Unless, you know, I was telling him that he'd done something well or, or you know, was stroking his ego. So it just left me feeling really, you know, belittled, like, like nothing. And, you know, it was also during this time I, I found out that um, what he had said about the ease of getting residency in the UK was also false. And so, of course, I needed residency to get a bank account and regain my independence over my finances. And because he had not told me some things I needed to know when I came into the country, by this point, I realized when I went to look into it myself that the only way I was going to be able to get residency was if I married him and pursued a spousal visa. And he had, of course, been pushing for that as well. But given how things had been playing out, I like really uh, did not want that. So um, about a month and a half before I ended up leaving the UK and I was there probably about six months in total. Um, we were traveling to London and he got really stressed during the trip and had this, you know, same type of huge explosion in our hotel room again in, in front of my daughter. And it was just awful. I mean, it was like two to three full hours, if not more, being screamed at. And, you know, I uh, took my daughter and went down to reception after a while. Well, I think he stormed out of the room and then I, I didn't want to stay there for him to come back. Um, 
And so I, I bought a separate hotel room for me and my daughter uh, so she could at least sleep because I didn't know how he'd be if he came back um, and was just really, you know, unsettled, obviously. And, um, you know, I told him we were staying in a separate room when he texted me and uh, he said he uh, was leaving. He was going to go back to Cardiff, just hours from London where we were living. And so that means he he left me and my daughter all alone in London with no money. I'd, I'd spent my cash on a hotel room trying to get space somehow to try and de-escalate stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I contacted, <laughs> I didn't know anyone in London or the UK. I mean, I tried to contact people I knew th through work, uh, desperately trying to find a way to uh, sort of fix this really messed up situation. Uh, but, you know, around 5 or 6 a.m., uh, he texted me saying he was back. Uh, to let him know what room we were in. And uh, then we hired a, a car to drive us back to Cardiff and canceled all the, the plans that led us to go to London in, in the first place. And, you know, after this explosion, he was able to recognize he had been wrong when he promised to go to therapy. Uh, but then when push came to shove, he didn't want to find a therapist. It was kind of dragging his feet. So I tried to set him up with one that a friend had recommended. And he said the first session went really well and been really great. Uh, and then after that, you know, she, he said she turned out to be crazy and was doing all this weird stuff and didn't want to go back. And, you know, it was all my fault that it had gotten weird, but I, I've never worked with the lady. I was just, you know, trying to find somebody to help him since he wasn't going to do it himself, I guess. And, you know, I also later reached out to her and asked if she had done what he had accused her of. And she said she hadn't, but, you know, I don't really know. Uh, I just know that he decided I had been uh, so wrong and awful to have recommended her. And every time I mentioned after that, that he should consider therapy again, he would angrily, uh, bring this lady up as a way to shut down the conversation. So after, um, this event and a few other blowups that were slightly minor than that one, um, I started having concerns about my daughter's peer group at her daycare. She was with you know, other kids her age, so other three to four-year-olds, and one of the girls her age and this girl's brother were apparently pulling on the pants of other kids and, like, touching their underwear, underwear, and they called it the nappy or diaper game, and I didn't really like that my daughter had tried to play this game at home with me, uh, and there were some other things going on that I'd noticed, you know, my daughter's behavior reflecting, you know, from the school, and I was like, you know what, I think I'm going to try and put her um, somewhere else. And, um, there was this other school closer to where we lived and there were some neighbors who had their kids there and said it was really good. So it just, it just kind of seemed logical, you know? So, uh, he said he would, uh, do that for me cause I had a lot going on and he would enroll her there. And, you know, after a few days, uh, he said, I asked, you know, so is she going to go? Have you heard from them? And he said he hadn't gotten a response, uh, to the first email he'd sent. So I asked if, you know, if he was going to do it, if he could just walk down to the school, it was like less than five blocks away and talk to somebody in person so I could get my daughter back in childcare, you know, instead of paying for sitters hourly, it's like a big cost difference, you know. So anyway, his response to that was that he would send uh, them an email uh, that they wouldn't ignore. And so it turned out that that email he had sent uh, said that we needed immediate childcare because my daughter had had to leave her other daycare due to a, quote, sexual situation. And the new daycare did respond immediately to that. 
but they asked for more details, and he essentially told them that the previous daycare had not just allowed, but had instigated and promote that the children there touch each other's private parts and that this was the nappy game. And so the new daycare quickly involved uh, the police and social services and a complaint and invest- was filed and investigation was opened against the old daycare based on a warped narrative that did not fit uh, at all what had originally prompted me to take my daughter out of school because as far as what my daughter had told me and what I had observed, this was two kids at the peer group doing this uh, without any sort of sanctioning from the daycare itself. So instead of owning up to the fact that he had exaggerated the situation, uh, he doubled down and basically decided to accuse uh, my daughter's old daycare of being pedophile and grooming enablers without evidence for it and just totally lost it when I didn't want to lawyer up and go nuclear when we didn't have evidence for allegations he had made via email um, because, you know, court's a little different than just blogging or publishing stuff online. Uh, so, or on Twitter, you know, so to make what he felt he could use as evidence, uh, he got, uh, my daughter after several coached attempts to say on camera, a version of events that more closely supported his narrative. And he said that I had to support this or I too, you know, was a pedo enabler and I wasn't protecting my own daughter from pedos and, you know, all, all of this stuff. And I was already pretty worn down by that time anyway. So, um, So social services launched an investigation into my daughter's previous daycare and they came up with nothing. So they dropped by our house unexpectedly one day and spoke uh, to him one-on-one and then to my daughter one-on-one. And then they interviewed me with my daughter. And when I hadn't said to them what he had wanted me to say to them, because he was apparently listening outside the room we were in, he just completely exploded at them and at me and he yelled and yelled and, and kicked them out of the house. And a day later, one of the social services people who had been there contacted me by phone because she asked for it when she had interviewed me at the house. And she asked to speak to me because she and the other girl had noticed that my three-year-old didn't react at all when he had uh, his meltdown, leading them rightfully, uh, to believe that this happened regularly in front of her. And um, I did speak to this lady afterwards because, you know, by this point, I felt not just completely trapped, but I felt like this situation that had been created over my daughter's, you know, daycare um, was just spiraling out of control and could potentially turn into major legal trouble and just was getting worse and worse. And all the complete refusal on his part to take any accountability or have like just no ability to de-escalate at all, which he'd, you know, shown numerous times before this. It just made it clear that this was not a sustainable situation. And, you know, I had to get out of it. And, you know, not to mention the fact that I was just completely miserable and had really started to become scared of him when he was angry because it's not like it got any better. You know, it just got worse and more, aggressive and constant, you know, over time. And it was just, I'd I'd never been scared like that in in a relationship before. And so to make a long story short, social services ended up coming by a few times and looked into our relationship more and and reached the conclusion that if I didn't leave him in in the UK by extension, because to stay there, I'd have to marry him. um, 
they would plan to take my daughter and my son once he was born into protective protective custody because of my ex's behavior. And I'm, it's obviously an unacceptable outcome. So I obviously had to go. And the problem was that I didn't have money to buy a plane ticket uh, because I would have to go through him to access my money. And then he would know I was leaving. And I was scared to tell him I was going to leave because of everything that he had done to try and keep me there. And thankfully, you know, a couple of friends intervened and bought my plane ticket. And I told my ex I had to go back to Chile because I was worried about the social services stuff and I didn't have any other options. And he said uh, he was planning to sue social services and that I could come back when he won. And I told him I would. So he acquiesced and I was just, I was just terrified of a confrontation of him and me alone in the house about me leaving because I wanted to and didn't want to be with him anymore. I just felt like I was too scared uh, to do that at the time. So in, in late August of 2021, I got, I got back to Chile after all of this. And uh, my son was born about four months later at the end of December. And in that time, you know, I did tell my ex from a safe distance that I had left to get away from him. And I, you know, how I really felt about my experience over there. But shortly before my, my son was born, uh, he claimed that he knew that he had been wrong, that it had been his anxiety, uh, that his decade-long use of, of Prozac and um, some dosing problem with another medication he took daily were to blame, and that if he sorted it out, uh, those things out, you know, everything would be the way it was meant to be. It wasn't him, it was the meds, right? And after a few months of, of grappling with uh, a newborn baby and a four-year-old while also trying to rebuild my life in Chile and having a, a book deadline for, you know, my book that came out last year, I um, gave him another chance and received him here again in, in Chile because um, I, I wasn't going to leave here. You know, I didn't want to lose my financial independence again. Um, and, you know, not unlike the time we had spent in the UK, it was just a disaster and more of the same. Uh, he was constantly trying to bully me into leave to, into leaving Chile again. And all I was saying is that I can't commit to a move right now because I just had a baby. I have this book deadline, you know, wait till the end of the year. And, you know, that wasn't even enough. So I sent him home like less than three months later. Um, but again, I got you know, it was winter, um, and it was, I got bogged down and overwhelmed by trying to juggle the kids, my looming book deadline on top of regular work, maintaining a household by myself. And, you know, also after years of being told that absolutely everything in the relationship that had ever happened was my fault, I thought if I could just try my absolute hardest in the relationship, then it could work. And I think a lot of my reasoning here was partially re related to stress uh, and partially related to this strategy that's detailed earlier in, in this podcast, uh, breadcrumbing, where a narcissist can have fleeting moments where it seems like they're rational or willing to take accountability for something, uh, which makes you think they can be reasoned with, uh, and that you just have to do everything they ask of you, and then things can work out, you know? And I think a lot of it, too, was just... Uh, the emotional pain of not wanting to be a single mother forever and wanting my son to have a father, you know, like I felt like I had to give him as big a chance as I could for things to work out because, you know, once, once you're a single mom with two kids, it's not like, you know, two kids with two different dads, it's not like you can ever um, expect to date again. So, you know, 
I felt like I had to be completely sure about him. And, you know, since narcissists are so good at sowing doubt, playing on your empathy and emotions, you know, I felt like I could, you know, maybe it was, I, I could do things that would make it better and it would turn out different this time, you know, and I mean, I really should have known from my experiences at this point that that's not how it was. But anyway, he came back last September, about a year ago, and things were mostly, you know, they were better than they'd been before, at least, you know, and they were manageable until, I guess, early January. And in early January, my daughter had gone to her father's house and told him that my ex had been hitting her uh, when I wasn't around. And her dad had uh, told me about it by phone and I told my ex about it. And all three of us felt that she had probably said it for attention because she hadn't seen her dad in a while uh, because he'd been kind of unavailable. So um, my daughter did get in trouble for not telling the truth and, you know, you know, also for telling a lie that could have serious repercussions. But honestly, my ex just went so far beyond in punishing her to the point that he became like obsessed with punishing her and was doing things like isolating her, not letting her play or interact with her brother, not letting her talk to me about what she was coloring or doing or thinking or just normal things, having panic attacks and anxiety attacks because she might be naughty during the weekend and all of this extreme stuff. And from the time my daughter said this to her dad, which was early January, uh, it went on until the end of March when I kicked out my ex for the last time. So that's almost three months of this going on every day at home. I had to sit or quit over it because it was just so extreme. And, and during that time, I wouldn't, he wouldn't let me have a say in how he treated her. I couldn't say anything about it at all without risking a giant explosive fight. Um, and in, in public, I mean, it was obviously a different story because he portrayed himself as super stepdad and, you know, but even people I know really well here that knew him too, they could tell that something weird was going on between him and, and my daughter. And, you know, when I did break up, um, did break up with him and, you know, it was about my daughter, it was about how he was treating me. Um, he, what the reason he gave as to why I shouldn't break up with him didn't have anything to do with uh, wanting to be in a relationship with me or caring about me or caring about his son. It was about how my relationship was his, quote, chance to make it an independent media. So he essentially admitted that he'd been using me. And, you know, honestly, probably had been from the beginning. And, um, you know, given what I experienced with my mom after my uncle's death and how the the abuse with her escalated when she was afraid that I was going to out her for what she had done uh, to, to my uncle, you know, part of me worries that maybe that's what my ex had been doing with my daughter and maybe she hadn't been lying to her dad. But I'll honestly, you know, that's something I'll, I'll never know because I'm not going to ask, bring it up to her again. You know, I'd like this all to be behind us. But, you know, as far as it, you know, relates to my ex, I, you know, I did eventually put my foot down and I, I sent him away because I could see history repeating itself. I felt like my daughter was starting to relive, you know, my childhood. I could see, you know, what she was experiencing. It, it was just like watching four-year-old, five-year-old me, you know, and I just um, did not want that for her at all because I just know how how painful it is. And I feel like my most important job as a parent is to stop that 
that cycle uh, of abuse from continuing. And I am honestly uh, embarrassed and ashamed to talk about it because it, I can't, you know, it's embarrassing and awful that it took me three months um, to do something about it. I should have done something way sooner, but, you know, um, well, you know, if you haven't been in a relationship with a narcissist, then maybe you don't, but relationships like that are really hard to break away from. They reduce you down to almost nothing. Uh, they fill you with self-doubt. Uh, it leaves you weak. You're, you know, um, like paralyzed in a sense. And, um, I guess if I can think of one positive thing from having to live that experience, it's that I understand my, my dad a lot better because, you know, for a long time, I, I never understood why he didn't leave a relationship where someone treated him poorly and where he was miserable and his kids were miserable. But, you know, um, I was him in my last relationship, especially those last three months. So, you know, at least, at least I understand him a little more. So, um, so here I, I've tried to give, you know, as succinct a summary as I, I can really about my experiences with um, narcissists, how it's affected me and, and my family in the long struggle that I've had as a result with uh, self-esteem, with boundaries, um, to stick up for myself uh, and how important the truth is. Because, you know, like I said earlier, you know, I got I basically had my mom launch a giant smear campaign against me when I was a teen. Um, and that sort of repeat has repeated itself while my son has been in the hospital uh, with my ex. And my, my son's father, um, who couldn't even be bothered to ask how he could help or support his extremely sick child, and who fundraised off of my son's condition, acting like he was involved with us when he wasn't, and had no intention to send any of that money here, uh, spent his time uh, privately smearing me behind my back to work colleagues, people I've worked closely with, contributors to my site, people I've co-written articles with, and people he knew were supporting my site via my website and so on, uh, while publicly taking credit for work he didn't actually do on my book and using it to promote his new website, and then also trying to create the public impression that we were still together uh, because it benefited him. Uh, and because he knows I don't like drama and I don't like conflict and that I was unlikely to say anything about it. Uh, but I did say something about it on Twitter uh, eventually to set things straight that he wasn't involved. Uh, and since then, he's made it very clear that he plans to put out some sort of uh, crazy hit piece on me or whatever. And I honestly don't want to live, uh, with fear or worry about what the, what this guy, what his narrative is about me now, or what he has to say about me. I just want to move on and spend time healing with my kids and not giving him any thought. So, you know, if you happen to care, I've left supporting evidence for what I've said about this in the show notes, but this is the first and only time I plan on speaking about really any of this stuff. Because as I said before, I'm talking about this uh, now uh, to heal. I'm not planning on talking about it again. And in the event, uh, uh, you know, that me having told my story helps someone realize that they're in an abusive relationship or had, you know, an experience similar to mine, you know, if it helps them, then it's worth it too. So, um yeah, thanks for taking the time to listen to me and, and my story.